Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. This is the beginning of the podcast. I'm Shereen. <laughs> yeah, I'm James. And this is It Could Happen Here. Today, we are going to be talking about the recent events that have happened in Palestine and the recent acts of terror that the IDF has committed against Palestinians. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Thanks for joining me, James. I appreciate um, it. Yeah, it's going to be another another fun one from us. <laughs> I know. I think that's like our thing. It's just... Yeah, uplifting podcast. If they don't leave depressed, we're not doing our job right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, we yeah. want you... If you're driving, maybe pull over because we're going to try and make you cry. <laughs> yeah. But no, really. I mean, like in all seriousness, there has been some, some shocking footage that has come out of Palestine this month. Um, on April 5th in particular, there was footage that emerged from Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the third holiest site in Islam. And it is within occupied East Jerusalem. The compound is within that area. And the videos are showing Israeli security forces mercilessly beating Palestinian worshippers. And that violence left at least 12 Palestinians injured and obviously just fueled more public anger. And three of those Palestinians had to go to the hospital. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if people haven't seen the videos, like, you, you don't have to watch them, really. Um, but it's pretty horrific. Like, um, we were just talking before we started about how monstrous you have to be to, like, to stand there and whack someone with a stick again and again and again, mm-hmm. especially yeah. when you know, they're not particularly any threat to you other than, you know, you perceive their existence as a threat to your state project. 
Um, yeah. And uh, they're just trying to go to the mosque. And yeah, they're it, literally just... They're, 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 there's no weapons. They're, they're trying to pray. They're praying. And they're, yeah. I feel like prayer is a very vulnerable state to be in. You know what I mean? Like, it's not... It's kind of like... I don't know. It's, yeah, it, it was just really upsetting. And, and you're right about the dehumanization thing, because we a gun would make it so much easier to kill someone, right? But to yeah, like purposely can, injure someone with your own hands, I think is monstrous yeah. for sure. I think maybe that's when a lot of people in America, at least, like, it was very formative to me the first time I saw a cop fucking battering someone with a stick, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, and I think if, if a lot of people in America maybe had that experience firsthand, couple of years ago and it maybe changed their perspective on things but yeah. like this is what colonialism does uh, everywhere yeah. right and it's that what's happening here and in ramadan as well right like yeah like and this is kind of like a eaten. trend like there's no excuse for what they're doing and people always try to point fingers about like who's the bad guy here but um on the other side, rockets were fired from Gaza and Lebanon as a warning sign after this escalation happened. It was literally a warning, like, please don't do this. This is wrong. Um, but Israel didn't listen. And the following day, Israel repeated the violent attack on Al-Haram al-Sharif, which is what Arabs call that compound. Mm -hmm. um, it's also called Temple Mount uh, for yeah. the people of Jewish faith. And yeah, they, and then... As that was happening the following day, Israel carried out air raids on Gaza and Lebanon. So not yeah. only did they not heed the warning, it was like a slap in the face. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the experience that some people had in Gaza from this, but that's a little bit later. But I just want to like put that out there that when people are like, oh, Hamas or whatever, they fired rockets. It's like, what do you what do you expect people pushing a corner to do? I just that's what I always think about. I don't know. Yeah. And if Hamas fires rockets or, or, you know, does that mean everyone should be collectively punished? Like you shouldn't be able to mm -hmm. practice your faith now. Like that, that's, that doesn't make any fucking sense. And like, yeah. How, how would you react if you'd seen your grandmother beaten with a fucking stick at, at church yeah. or synagogue or mosque, wherever you go? Um, yeah. Especially, yeah. Like during Ramadan, a time when like this particular place on earth, it has got like the, all the Abrahamic faiths are like mm -hmm. looking at this place and trying to do their religious stuff there. And like, I'm not a particularly religious guy, but uh, like, surely there's no religion which where like the thing you should be doing at your holy days is beating people with a stick. Yeah. You know? Like, even if you're not a Muslim, that that area is still really sacred to both mm -hmm. Christians and Jewish people. And you would think that Jews would want to be horrific on that area in general. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah, not. It, it's just it, like, even, even if that little area is not particular sacred to you like it's still all sacred in my opinion yeah. and i feel like people forget that i don't know yeah it takes a real like um it's an interesting is the wrong word it's the juxtaposition of these sacred spaces and then it's incredible like it's somewhere i've been when i was younger and like uh all, all around that part of jerusalem all, all around jerusalem i guess is juxtaposition of like sacred spaces which are supposed to be peaceful and calm and reflective and then people doing the violence of colonialism mm -hmm. uh, like right there and it, it's just such a profound kind of whiplash every time yeah. you, you move from one to the other and yeah because they're the extremes of both it's like one of the most sacred and one of the most violent it's not there's no like wishy-washiness about it but 
Yeah. Let me continue. Okay, so after this happened, the Arab League held an emergency meeting to discuss these air raids. And just in case you don't know, the Arab League is a regional organization in the Arab world. It has 22 members, uh, but Syria hasn't been a member since 2011. That could be another episode another time. <laughs> but that's what the Arab League is in case someone out there needed a refresher. Mm-hmm. But the League condemned the attack and it said in a statement that, quote, the extremist approaches that control the policy of the Israeli government will lead to widespread confrontations with the Palestinians if they are not put to an end. And at least 400 Palestinians were arrested on Wednesday of April 5th when this happened, and they remain in Israeli custody. They're being held at a police station in occupied East Jerusalem for no reason. It's never really for a reason. It's very rare that it's for a reason, but yeah. yeah. Palestinian witnesses said Israeli forces use excessive force, including stun grenades and tear gas, causing suffocation injuries to the worshippers and then beating them with batons and rifles. There was a 24-year-old student who was detained, Bekir Owais, and he said, We were conducting iktikaf, which is the religious Muslim worship that is reserved for Ramadan. It's very sacred. And he said, we were conducting iktikaf at the Al-Aqsa because it's Ramadan. The army broke the upper windows of the mosque and began throwing stun grenades at us. They made us lie down on the ground and they handcuffed us one by one and took us all out. They kept swearing at us during this time. It was very barbaric. And then an elderly woman said, according to this reporter, she was like catching her breath outside and in tears. And she said, I was sitting on a chair reciting the Quran. They hurled stun grenades and one of them hit my chest. And this is like, it's, there's, there's no discrimination. You know what I mean? It's not, there's no discrimination to their hate. Everyone is under the same umbrella. Yeah. If they're Palestinians, if they're Muslims, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you, you can't be like using tear gas selectively in a place of worship. Like that's not how that works. Right? Yeah. If you're going to break windows and throw in tear gas. You, by definition, you're targeting every single person there for the crime of being there. Yeah, uh, and there's no excuse of like we were t- we were shooting back at shooters. You know what I mean? That's not an excuse anymore yeah, yeah, yeah. they could use. It's like you're infiltrating a place where people are literally trying to pray. Like there's no yeah. there's no excuse. Um, yeah, like old ladies who yeah. haven't eaten all day. Yeah, had a drink of water. Like they're not like, and you shouldn't be threatened by those people. Like yeah, but if if their existence as Muslims in a place that you don't think they should be allowed to exist is threatening to you, then that's because you're doing a colonialism yeah and you're i mean you're the bad guy in the situation in this case um and the palestinian red cross said that israeli forces prevented medics from reaching the mosque and this has happened before as james mentioned Mm -hmm. to me before the podcast it's like a very typical characteristic thing of the idf to block paramedics or aid to come help people yeah People want to look more at, um, like, our podcast alumni, uh, Tarek, has done a lot of first aid work in Gaza, um, and he's written about it on his Medium page. I'll find a link and we'll put it in our sources. Yes, but, please, um, yeah. You can see some first-hand accounts of how difficult it is to, like, again, right, that I don't really see how you could find it objectionable to help someone who's been hurt. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it seems to be a recurrent thing. Yeah, it's it is. Um, And what I always find amusing is Israel's statements after things like this happen. They're always (laughs) so comical and so stupid. And this time they said 
When the police entered, stones were thrown at them, and fireworks were fired from inside the mosque by a large group of agitators. It also said that a police officer was wounded in the leg. Like, womp womp, are you kidding me? Like... (laughs) I don't care about his fucking leg. I don't like they're, they always mention stones. I'm so tired of them mentioning yeah, stones yeah. and rocks. Like, shut up. <sighs> the most it's powerful army it, in the Middle East. And it's like they hurled stones at us. Like, fuck off. Yeah, you have the fucking Iron Dome and a kid has thrown us a rock at you. Uh, like and like the, the stone thing in particular. I don't know why. Like, it's something the Border Patrol use a lot when they uh, kill people at the border, right? They, well, like, yeah, someone threw yeah. a stone. This was the thing. Like, it's when, there's, there's a commonality of training between these two organizations, right? But, mm-hmm. like, yeah, what? Who, you, also, like, when we entered the mosque, some people threw stones at us. Like, what were you fucking doing in the yeah, mosque? Like, exactly. why were you there? Like, and I'll, I'll get into the, the rules later, but there are very specific times because this place is sacred to so many people. There are specific times for each faith to enter and use the compound. And so they weren't supposed to be there and they were beating people to make way for Jewish people to enter and and have their time. But that's not the way to do it. And I'm pretty sure they weren't supposed to be there at that time. But I mentioned this in a previous episode. The government is more far right than ever. And so the nationalists that are like encouraging violence are usually the ones that are succeeding. In response to this, Jordan and Jordan acts as a custodian of Jerusalem's Christian and Muslim holy sites. This is under a status quo agreement that has been in place since the 1967 war. They condemned the flagrant storming of the compound. And then Egypt, they called for an immediate halt to Israel's blatant assault on Al-Aqsa worshippers. But other than that, there hasn't been much. Like the U.S. said, like, I think, I don't know the exact quote that anyone in the U.S. said, but I'm sure they were like, oh, no, this shouldn't happen. And then they move on. Um, It's never really any kind of helpful action or reprimand or yeah. anything there's yeah one from Karine jean-pierre which is we urge all sides to avoid further escalation which like why would you why do you even bother saying shit when you like, like don't yeah. escalate when uh, they come into your mosque and tear gas you and throw stun grenades at you like what are they supposed to do like sing kumbaya yeah also yeah. why it's like it's like the same situation we had a couple years ago where you have The police that are in SWAT gear and fully armed with people that aren't. And you're saying like this both sides thing, like both sides shouldn't do violence or escalate or whatever. And I think it's so stupid when that happens because there's a clear aggressor and a clear victim in that situation. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, Palestinians see Al-Aqsa Mosque as one of the few national symbols over which they retain some element of control. They are, however, fearful of a slow encroachment um, by Jewish groups. And this is what happened at the Ibrahimi Mosque, which is also called the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron. And in 1967, half of the mosque was turned into a synagogue. So Palestinians are worried about that happening again. And they're also worried about far-right Israeli movements that want to demolish the Islamic structures in Al-Aqsa Mosque and build a Jewish temple in their place. So it's not just like rumors of this happening. There are nationalists in the far-right government and the people that they follow that want that to happen. And by now, it is quite clear that American efforts to prevent another escalation in Palestine is failing. And it's not the Palestinian side that's responsible Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, his desperate bid to cling to power 
is not conducive to any de-escalation that anyone can ever encourage. Like, all he's doing is accelerating the process of violence and triggering instability. Not just in East Jerusalem, but like all over the state of Palestine. And okay, before we move on, let's take our first break before I forget. BRB. We are back. I ended the last segment talking about how the U.S. diplomacy is failing, an understatement of the century. But for more than a year now, the tensions in occupied Palestine territories have been very high. The armed Palestinian resistance has been active, especially in Jenin and Nablus, and Israeli security forces have carried out incessant violent raids of Palestinian towns and villages. I said this in a previous episode, but the UN called 2022 the deadliest year for the occupied West Bank in the past 16 years. And the Israeli army killed at least 170 Palestinians, including 30 children, and injured at least 9,000 people. The first two months of this year have been the most violent since the year 2000, with 65 Palestinians killed, including 13 children. This year, the Muslim holy month of Ramadan coincides with the Jewish holiday of Passover. Al-Haram al-Sharif, aka Temple Mount, is significant, as I said, for both Muslims and Jews. Muslims believe it's the place where Muhammad ascended to heaven, and the Jewish people believe that it's the site of two biblical temples. Regardless, it contains the Al-Aqsa Mosque currently, and it's been there since 1035 AD. And it's, again, the third holiest site for Muslims, and an incredibly sacred place for prayer and worship, it's, I'm sure there's like an energy there. Like, I'm not religious, but I kind of feel that energy sometimes where like everyone thinks or believes in a place and it, be- it becomes important just as a, as a place. It doesn't even need to be explained, I think, right. in general. And maybe I'm biased because I was raised Muslim, but still, there, I think it's silly to pretend that this is at, at this current point in time, like there's a reason for them not to be there or there's a reason for, there's a reason for like a synagogue to be built instead. Like, I think it's just so stupid. My vocabulary isn't expansive enough to actually describe how I feel, but you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's... Yeah, it, it and it's such a barbarous thing to do, to take this thing and, like, to destroy it that's so special to literally more than a billion people. Yeah. And be like, nah, fuck you. Like, we have more guns, so we're doing our thing now. Yeah. And yeah. it was correctly speculated because of this coincision of Ramadan and Passover that it would be a potential flashpoint for violence. And two regional meetings were held under United States supervision to hope to preclude any major escalations from this time. And uh, it didn't work, obviously. On February 26th, Palestinian, Israeli, Jordanian, Egyptian, and American officials met in the Jordanian city of Aqaba. They emphasize a commitment to a, quote, de-escalation on the ground to prevent further violence. And Israel pledged to stop authorizing new illegal settlements in Palestinian territories for six months. On March 19th, the second regional meeting happened, and it was held in Sharm el-Sheikh, where the Palestinian and Israeli officials committed to uphold the status quo of the holy sites in Jerusalem, quote, both in words and in practice. And they emphasized the, quote, necessity of both Israelis and Palestinians to actively prevent any actions that would disrupt the sanctity of these sites in general, but especially during the upcoming holy month of Ramadan. I feel like every time Israel says anything, you can't 
actually believe anything they say. There's pledges yeah. don't matter. The UN's labeling them as an apartheid state doesn't matter. Um, nothing really matters because it's all empty words. And Netanyahu's government hasn't been upholding the status quo in words or in practice. He is allied with far-right and ultra-religious forces that have openly stated that the Israeli recognition of the Zardinian guardianship of the holy sites was a historic mistake that they are bound on rectifying. So not only are they meeting just like to save face, I think, they've openly said that we don't respect this, this, this group that is being held together. We want, we, want to, we want to change it. We don't, like, I don't understand how anyone can believe anything this country says. Even within Israel, right, like people who can recognize that this, this current like Netanyahu coalition is, is opposed to the basics of their constitution and their democracy. Uh, and like when when you have people within the IDF being like, "Now, nah, dog, you've gone too far," uh, like the, I think that that says a lot. Um, but like, they're not saying you've gone too far in, in yeah throwing stone grenades into a mosque, right? Like, yeah, he, he exactly. will get away with pushing that shit further and further. Um, and he has gotten me. away with it. It's it's atrocious. Yeah. Um, and will continue to when he gets domestic pushback, right? Like mm -hmm. because like. Aggressive Zionism is the kind of unifying, like the grand unifying policy yeah. that, that brings people together for him totally. and for his coalition. Mm -hmm. So he's gonna, he'll keep doing this, and like, it would be irrational to expect people in Palestine not to respond. Like, there are, I know there are lots of new groups that are like popping up to to fight back, which you know, you'd have to be incredibly naive to expect that not to happen. Yeah, it's just uh, what happens when you push people in a corner. And then I think what they actually like is an excuse to fight back, too. So like when these when these groups do attack, that's always their excuse as to why they're attacking. So it's almost like they're provoking an attack on purpose to give them a reason to attack, which is stupid. Again, that word is the only word in my head right now. OK, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was thinking about this thing that they do again, which just seems to be like sticking a middle finger up. It's like that they like to withhold the bodies of people they've killed. Uh huh. Yes. Quite often, uh, and like, I, I just don't like. What do you expect to gain by mm -hmm. doing that, other than just being unfathomably cruel? And the burial process for Muslims is yeah. very sacred. It's a very sacred ritual, and so they're purposely <laughs> denying them of that. It's like, I mean, the Geneva Convention is it's like a, a pretend thing um, that, mm -hmm. that doesn't matter, but uh, yeah. it's still inhumane, right? It doesn't matter if some, some people, so some old white dudes a long time ago decided it was inhumane or not, because I think anyone with yes. their head screwed on could be like, that's, that's fucked up. Um, yeah, I agree. So, yeah. And speaking of the Zionist movement and the far right movement, 2023 started with the far right minister of national security, Itamar Ben-Gavir. He entered Al-Haram al-Sharif and this provoked public anger across Palestine. Under his watch, the raids by Israeli settlers on the Muslim holy site of Al-Aqsa Mosque, they were under the protection of the Israeli security forces and they've only intensified. Ben-Gavir and other extremists in the government are Netanyahu's only chance to stay in power and to avoid going to jail for corruption. And they know that, and they're taking advantage of the situation to support, by all means possible, the violence that the Jewish settlers have unleashed onto the Palestinian people in the occupied West Bank and continue to erode the status quo at the holy sites 
All of this is an aim to establish new facts on the ground, aka full Israeli control. All of this is with the aim of establishing full Israeli control. And Netanyahu does not mind this violence. He encourages and likes it for his own means. For him, violence is a useful distraction from the anti-government protests which have plagued his sixth term in office. Because I, I did an election episode about Israel that you can always listen to, but Netanyahu being in power wasn't supposed to happen again, is the main thing. And him being in power and bringing in this terrible government, there, there's a reason why it's all happening so intensely. Yeah, it's just years of Zionist encouragement finally coming to a head, especially now that a lot of Zionists are in power. And war is not really in Israel's interest. It's currently preoccupied with the Palestinian resistance in the West Bank. It's worried about Iran's military presence and diplomatic successes in the region. It's been striking Syria regularly, even just days after the devastating earthquakes that happened this year. They bombed Syria. Yeah. And they want to curb Iranian influence, and they're also concerned about Hezbollah's role in a recent roadside bomb explosion near the border with Lebanon. So starting a religious war, quote unquote, does not suit their, like, I, I don't understand the motivation there other than to further assert dominance and to scare the Palestinians. On the other side, Hamas in Gaza has tried to take a measured response Again, it warned Israel against further raids on Al-Aqsa, and it is reluctant to escalate this because it would take attention from the Palestinian resistance in the West Bank because Hamas sees the main area of conflict with Israel as the conflict in the West Bank. Armed attacks in the occupied territories cause much more anxiety to the Israeli authorities than a confrontation with Gaza. Hamas's strategy now is to encourage a popular Palestinian mobilization in the West Bank, Jerusalem, and Israel in order to serve as a barrier to further encroachment on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that said, Hamas may find itself under pressure to act decisively, especially if Israel's brutal violence against worshippers continues. The Palestinian people, I mentioned this in previous episode, but they have reacted angrily at the weak response from the, the PA, the Palestinian Authority, and its inaction. They're frustrated that the supposed protectors or liaisons that they, they that they have to negotiate or protect them, they're not doing anything. So that anger becomes this pressure on someone to act. And it's usually Hamas because they're the, the longest standing and most powerful group in that area. The Hamas leadership would not want to be perceived as passive, and they may feel compelled to abide by popular demand to take a tougher stance and intensify rocket fire towards Israel. And this would repeat, as I mentioned earlier, the 2021 war on Gaza, which was also triggered by Israel's raids on Al-Aqsa Mosque. And this would only further escalate the violence well after Ramadan. It's not going to just be contained in this month. Yeah. And let's take our last break We'll be right back. And we're back talking about the escalation of violence. And there have been repeated warnings that Israel's actions in the holy sites could trigger a quote-unquote religious war. In January, Jordanian Ambassador Mahmoud Daifala Hamoud told the UN Security Council that Israeli attacks on al-Haram al-Sharif are provoking, quote, the feelings of nearly 2 billion Muslims, and this could spark a religious conflict. 
So the people that are saying it's religious may actually have a point if this actually comes to a head, Um, (laughs) because it's actually not the whole the whole Israel-Palestine quote unquote conflict is not about religion. It's about occupation and colonialism. But in this particular instance, when it comes to the mosque, the anger is very rooted in faith and a direct like slap in the face of that faith. Yeah, it takes a yeah, you can make it a religious conflict, I think as like other colonial powers have been very good at doing by like desecrating holy sites of a religion. Yeah. Right. Like, um, like it's kind of, yeah, you, you risk alienating, like I said, a billion people or, you know, uniting a billion people, uh, yeah. in opposition when you just flagrantly do this shit like mm-hmm. this. Like, I don't think anyone who, like, I'm not a religious person either. And like, I watched that video of the, and the cops or soldiers, I guess, kind of the same thing. And, uh, like, beating people with chairs and shit. And, mm-hmm. like, it, that made me furious. That made me want to hurt someone. Like, yeah. and that's not something that's especially special to me. And if mm-hmm. it was, I can imagine I'd be even more furious. It should make anyone mad to see someone treated like that. You know what I mean? It should make anyone furious to see that kind of terror taking place. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of people have trouble putting themselves in someone else's shoes maybe or like they have trouble caring about something that that doesn't affect them and i think that is a very dangerous path to go on um it's just very Mm -hmm. self-centered and main charactery and heartless in my opinion it's very odd that as humans like we've normalized the existence and uh, to an extent people will like simp for the existence of like this state right which is like an abstraction of capital and like then the state exists as an abstraction of capital and it has boundaries and rules and if if you transgress those even if you don't if you're just like uh like antithetical to its vision for a piece of land mm-hmm. then then people can come and beat the shit into you while you're praying now like that's just a thing that's going to happen and like i don't know if i feel like sometimes if we if we sort of reround the past 2 or 300 years and we're like hey peasant in the 1700s like do you want to be in a place where like some, someone could walk into this mosque at any time, throw these stun grenades, beat the shit out of old ladies. And like, no one would go from like A to B, right? But we're at B now and, and, and people don't seem to want to like investigate how we got here and what we can do to change it. Yeah. They, yeah, they regard it as like just a thing that happens in order for hum- like humanity or like civilization to progress. Yeah. Um, it's so backwards. It's, it's it, should, it doesn't have to be like that. No, people can read uh, The Dawn of Everything. They want to. Yes. They want to know about that. Um, but yeah, or you could just, you know, not simp for cops. If you don't, if you don't <laughs> that want to read help. a book. That, that's a good <laughs> yeah, first yeah. step yeah. is to fuck cops. Um, yeah. But there is a growing concern that with its aggressive actions in Al-Aqsa, Netanyahu's government is seeking to impose restrictions on the access that Palestinians have to the holy site, the way that it was done with the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron that I mentioned earlier. This mosque was divided by the Israeli authorities into sections that Muslims and Jews can visit to supposedly prevent further violence because a massacre happened there in 1994 when a Jewish settler opened fire on Muslim worshippers and killed 29 people who were there to pray. So it's we've talked about how history repeats itself a lot and being afraid of that happening is, is not illogical. It's not irrational because it's happened before it could happen again. Yeah, the IDF always backs up these settlers, right? Like, uh, they did it um, yesterday, I think. Like, a kid was killed in a refugee camp uh, mm-hmm. in a 
incident, I think we'd started when, uh, if I'm not wrong, there was a, a march, like a bunch of settlers were marching into into an area and claiming that, you know, Israel yeah. should legalize it and normalize it. And, uh, yeah, do another colonial conquest. And yeah, it, it, they're willing to shoot a kid. Like, it, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. they, they seem to be willing to back these people, especially when they form, if I understand correctly, like an important part of the coalition that Netanyahu's relying on right now. Oh, it's a huge part. And also those marches by settlers are usually protected by cops. They're like they're shielded by the IDF. It's not like they're there to stop any kind of conflict. They're there to protect the settlers. It's it's just backwards. History repeating itself. And if these measures are imposed on Al-Aqsa, it would be a clear violation of the status quo under which non-Muslims are allowed to visit only at certain hours of the day and they're not allowed to pray inside. But this is obviously not what's happening. And so far, there have only been condemnations issued by Arab states and the EU and the US. What Arab and Western capitals do not understand is that unless there is a harsh response to Israeli actions now, Netanyahu's far-right allies will only be emboldened to go even further in their efforts to take over Muslim and Christian holy sites and settle there. Israeli aggression in El Haram al-Sharif is turning Israel into a detonator that will sooner or later blow up the whole region. It's really felt like that for me for a long time and for a lot of people. It's like this metaphorical ticking time bomb and Israel themselves is provoking it to detonate. And I think this pressure cooker of a situation is bound to have an apex. It's not going to be boiling forever. And the violence isn't just contained at Al-Aqsa. Israel didn't take a break from all their other terrorist activities Focus on just one because their other terrorist activities are still happening. As you mentioned, on April 10th, a Palestinian child was killed by Israeli forces in the Aqabat Jaber refugee camp in Jericho. Mohammed Fayez Balhan was 15 years old and he was shot in the head, chest and stomach. Make it make sense. On April 8th, the Gaza Strip endured a night of bombardment as Israeli fighter jets conducted air raids on several sites in the territory. The first Israeli airstrike that hit was near El Dora Children's Hospital in the besieged Gaza Strip. Some reporters talked to people that experienced this event, this act of terror, and so I'm going to read some of their uh, quotes. Samar Elwan talked to Al Jazeera about her terrifying experience. When she rushed to her two-year-old daughter's bed to pick her up, moments later, the glass from the window next to her on the bed shattered and crashed onto the cot. She said, My daughter miraculously survived. Last night, we were sleeping in the ward. Suddenly, we woke up to the sound of terrifying airstrikes. There were moments of massive fear. The glass was falling. I immediately rushed to take my child out of her bed. Moments later, the window fell on her bed. I was so close to losing her. Jesus Christ. She continues to say, All the sick children were frightened and screaming. A state of tension prevailed among all the mothers and the medical staff because of the intensity of the bombing. Glass from the windows was falling and shattering. There were some windows that fell onto the beds of sick children just moments after they had been picked up. And this could have caused a catastrophe and a large number of injuries. The Gaza's Ministry of Health said, This is not the first time that health facilities have been targeted, and it is unacceptable. These attacks not only put patients' lives at risk, but they also create a sense of fear among healthcare workers, patients, and their families. The same mother from earlier went on to say, Several children have spent the night trembling in fear. 
Our children are poor in Gaza. They do not enjoy Ramadan or Eid or any other occasion. They are always threatened with fear and destruction that may come their way at any moment. Yeah, that's... Um, we did an interview a few months ago with some some young men from Gaza that we haven't put out yet, but we will. Um, but I've spoken to them quite a few times, and I remember one of the mm-hmm. things that they would say to me that really sort of, like, was very affecting for me was that, like, they they got... They had very young boys who would come and stay and they would do parkour together mm-hmm. and that these eight-year-old boys would routinely wake up in the middle of the night screaming, yeah. and like like with horrible PTSD. And they think, yeah, the fuck, they're children. Like, they, sh- they shouldn't be anywhere near that stuff. Um, yeah. And, like, people will talk about precision airstrikes in Gaza and, like, it's not, a, like, even, even if you manage to somehow not kill any people... Um, then you're still going to fundamentally alter the course of someone's life in, in a terrible yeah. way. There was there was a study done, I'm, pra- I'm paraphrasing it, but it basically showed that the children in Gaza are in a perpetual state of trauma. Like they had they never they never get over the phase where they're out of that fight or flight mentality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's they're stunted in this the fear part of PTSD. And it's so sad because that's their that's their reality. They've never known anything different other than mm-hmm. fear and violence and the loss of life at any moment. Yeah. And they can't leave, right? Like, it's extremely mm-hmm. difficult. Like, our friends have tried to leave. It's taken them years of trying to leave. Yeah. Like they, they can't go anywhere else. They're trapped in the most bomb place on Earth. And that's yeah. the whole reality. Gaza has been referred to an open-air concentration camp. Like, it's mm-hmm. not just a place where people live it's it's been just the main target of israel for a really long time and i've i always recommend this movie but gaza fights for freedom is a great movie by abby martin it's free on youtube i would watch it if you want some more examples of what's happening in gaza because it's it's horrific it's a hard watch but it's important if you want more information yeah in the altafa district of gaza city raids were also taking place Majdi Abu Nima and his family woke up at 3 a.m. for Sahur, which is the pre-sunrise meal right before you fast the whole day. So they woke up at 3 a.m. and then suddenly Israeli warplanes were attacking the empty land next to their house, and this caused severe destruction to their home. Abu Nima is the father of seven children, and he told Al Jazeera, It was like an earthquake. We were terrified. Immediately, I rushed to my three daughters' bedroom to find my two-year-old daughter covered in shattered window glass. I can't forget her shock, fear, and her heartbeat. Everyone in the house was screaming. Until now, I don't understand why they bombed our area. How could an empty land be bombed without any justification? There are no resistance fighters or any military sites here. It is just an empty land between residential buildings. And there was a lot of destruction that happened, as I said. Um, There's no excuse for it. Uh, the oldest son in this family, he his car was obliterated, and it was his only source of income. And he told Al Jazeera, Conditions in the Gaza Strip are unbearably difficult. The bombing came and destroyed whatever we have left. Life here has truly become hell. Jesus Christ. Like, do you want to spell that any differently, yeah. people? But I don't want to end this episode completely on a terrible note. I was really happy today when I woke up and my mom sent me this video of Bernie Sanders calling Israel a racist government, like in those words on television, which is very, very important, especially as 
a Jewish ally. Because I've said, I've said this before, but Jewish people that defend Palestine are some of the most important allies we can have because there's no excuse for anyone to be like, you're anti-Semitic because it's not about that. It's not about religion or anything. If you're anti-Zionist, you're not anti-Semitic. It's very different. And so having Bernie Sanders be the one to call out Israel is very important. So I want to play that clip because he'll say it better than I can. And uh, yeah, that's the episode. Do you um, think that democracy is imperiled in Israel right now? I do. And I am very worried about what Netanyahu is doing and some of his allies in government and what may happen to the Palestinian people. And let me tell you something. I mean, I haven't said this publicly, but I think the United States gives billions of dollars in aid to Israel. And I think we've got to put some strings attached to that and say you cannot run a racist government. You cannot turn your back on the two-state solution. You cannot demean the Palestinian people there. You just can't do it and then come to America and ask for money. Has the administration, have you talked to the administration no. about it? They've been very careful Our, in criticism of the Netanyahu government. Well, I, I, I am not careful about it. Uh, I'm embarrassed that, that in Israel you have a government of that nature right now. And are you going to introduce something? We may well, yes. To try to attach strings, strings look, to USA. You cannot give, if you have a, you know, whether it's Saudi Arabia or other authoritarian societies, if a government is acting in a racist way and they want billions of dollars from the taxpayers of the United States, I think you say, sorry, that's not acceptable. You want our money? Fine. This is what you got to do to get it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here. 
It's still Shireen, and I'm still joined with the one and only James Stout. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, anytime. The listeners, they get what they want, you know? They, they demanded it, and here we are, <laughs> delivering. <laughs> Log on to the subreddit. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean... voice you said. I was interested in having someone else uh, receive the information I had, because mm-hmm. it's really hard to do it by myself, and it's also yeah. hard not to, like, sound like a bored professor or something, because I just sound like this. Um, <laughs> something I have experience with, yeah. yeah. No, you don't sound like a bored professor, but it's also very emotionally challenging to just be yeah. like, here are some terrible fucking things that have happened again. And, and Exactly. To, like, yeah. It's nice and when you write yourself, it's like, it, it feels a lot heavier for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm glad to have someone else on. Anyway, thank you. Today, I wanted to talk about something that happened 75 years ago this month. So there's going to be some history here, but I think it's really important history. So please uh, stay tuned if you want to learn some stuff. But 75 years ago this month, before Israel was officially established, the Deir Yassin massacre happened. This massacre was part of the Nakba, or the catastrophe, and it matters even 75 years later. And it should always serve as a reminder of the atrocities and massacres that took place in order for a country that was already there to be stolen, renamed, terrorized, have people killed and forcibly removed from their homes. And the indigenous people uh, were expelled uh, from their homes and the ownership of their own land was granted to someone else. And I think reminding everybody of what happened to make that happen is extremely important because we're not that far removed from that brutalization. It's not like we can say like, oh, that was medieval times. Like people were different. It's like, no, that was like less than 100 years ago. Shut up. The Nakba, aka the catastrophe in Arabic, it refers to the violent expulsion of approximately three quarters of all Palestinians from their homes and homeland by Zionist militias and the new Israeli army, during the state of Israel's establishment between 1947 and 1948. The Nakba was a deliberate and systematic act intended to establish a Jewish-majority state in Palestine. Amongst themselves, Zionist leaders used the euphemism quote-unquote transfer when discussing plans for what today would be called ethnic cleansing. The roots of the Nakba and the ongoing problems in Palestine and Israel today, they lie in the emergence of the political Zionism from the late 1800s, when some European Jews, influenced by the nationalism that was sweeping the continent, they decided that the solution to anti-Semitism in Europe and Russia was the establishment of a state for Jews in Palestine. They began immigrating to Palestine as colonizers, where they started depossessing indigenous Muslim and Christian Palestinians. In November of 1947, following World War II and the Holocaust, the newly created United Nations approved of a plan to divide Palestine into Jewish and Arab states against the will of the majority indigenous Palestinian Arab population. Again, this was not their decision or choice to make. Regardless, the UN approved of a plan to divide Palestine into Jewish and Arab states against the will of Palestinian people. It gave 56% of that land to the proposed Jewish state, despite the fact that Jews only owned about 7% of the private land in Palestine and made up only 33% of the population. And a very large percentage of this percentage of 33% were recent immigrants from Europe. So handing over more than half of someone else's land truly doesn't make sense. I don't care what religious text you're citing. It was wrong at this point in time to take that land. 
It was just wrong. The Palestinian Arab state was to be created on just 42% of Palestine, even though Muslim and Christian Palestinians made up a large majority of the population and were indigenous to all of the land. Jerusalem was to be governed by a special international administration. Almost immediately after the partition plan was passed, the expulsion of Palestinians by Zionist militias began months before the arming of neighboring Arab states began to be involved. So there was no other person to say, don't do this. Or like, there was there was no one else to fight to hold them back, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And by the time these Zionist militias and the new Israeli army finished, the new state of Israel covered 78% of Palestine. So they didn't even follow the rules either. They just kept on swallowing up the land that wasn't even theirs to begin with, with this violent Nakba that it, it's just, it's it's a terrible, horrific thing they did. There is a film on Netflix called Farha. It's the first film that depicts any kind of uh, story about the Nakba. And it's by a Palestinian filmmaker. It's really powerful. Uh, I would recommend seeing that if you want an example of what happened, because it's all factual as far as like the terror that they did. Um, so I'd recommend that film. Give it five stars for the haters. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I can imagine the reviews are just like yeah. death. Yeah, that was the film that the Israeli government tried to to, to ban. And they were uh, a, a lot of Zionists were commenting like terrible things about it like, and giving it one star or whatever. They wanted Netflix to take it off Netflix. Mm-hmm. But no, we fuck the haters. Help us out. Yeah. Five stars. Put it on the background of your TV. It doesn't matter. Just, just <laughs> keep streaming it on a <laughs> just loop. Keep streaming it. Exactly. Yeah. Strike a blow against colonialism. But that's just your... an example of how important and and scared they are of the truth uh because it's a movie it's a fucking movie yeah control of the narrative is so important in these things exactly right? like, yes uh, and even the the way you refer to it right not not calling it the nakba like mm-hmm. calling calling it a transfer not a cleansing exactly uh these thing, calling it like not referring to it in the same terms as we would do like the genocidal uh, settler colonialism that settled this country or you know the way that Britain and France and Germany behaved in Africa like trying trying to not like specifically opposing calling it an apartheid state mm-hmm. right when when it, 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 that's what it is that's what it does like all of those things are so important and they might seem like petty battles but uh they they really control how we see things i think when you control language you can control how people perceive things 100% and I think controlling the narrative is so parallel to like controlling the history books because that's what mm-hmm. gets remembered by the people that want to the narrative to have a certain thing. Not all history books, obviously, but a lot of the times the things that are considered facts are biased, you know? Um, I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, or you're only getting half of the the things, right? Or like, yeah, like, I mean, as a historian, like we are all biased, um, and so we we should declare our biases and sort of go forward that way rather than presenting our biases as unbiased and neutral mm-hmm. and then obviously creating a biased thing, um, yeah. which, which is what we tend to get in the US, especially when we look at this stuff, right? Yeah, no, totally. I love that I like, I didn't bash historians, but I criticized them. But you're like, I'm a historian. <laughs> yeah, no, I yeah, know I you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, won't, I will not uh, jump to the defense of Zionist historians. I've worked with like, uh, I um. Uh, there's a chapter in my book about volunteers in the Spanish Civil War um, and like 
about 30% of volunteers were Jewish people, right? Mm. And many of them had been like, uh, didn't, couldn't go back to, uh, like, there, there are some of them who like fought in the Spanish Civil War, were guerrillas in the Second World War, survived the Holocaust in some cases, and then were anti-Zionist. And so like, they didn't have a place. Like, they, mm-hmm. you know, there, there wasn't a place for them as people who had, had, had stuck to their very decent principles of like, you shouldn't impose shit on force by people who don't want it and uh, mm-hmm. were opposed to fascism or opposed to colonialism. There, there wasn't a place for them in, in that sort of post-World War II Jewish movement, that Zionist movement. There were in other places, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's very sad that their stories aren't like, like uh, a friend of mine was the person who first wrote articles about them, but like their memory is completely erased, right? Mm-hmm. And, or yeah. at least it's not present and then, they should be people that like any reasonable person would be very proud of, right? They were willing yeah. to go and die for someone else's battle. And then, yeah, they were kind of, they stuck to the same principles the whole way through and, and the world kind of moved around them. Yeah. And I mean, I think as time goes on, those things won't even be existing in people's reality. You know what I mean? Like if no one remembers that that happened, if no one is part yeah, of what it, that happened, like it's just going to go away. It's going to disappear. Yeah, that's why it's so important to do history and to do like to use different sources, right? Yeah. And to do history uh, from a people's perspective, not from a perspective of people who are in power. Exactly. Uh, and, and wow. History that's from powerful. below. That's what we call it. But, Wait, say, uh, say that sounds one more time. <laughs> if people call it history from below, but uh, like, and to look at other sources, right? Like, um, without like riding my hobby horse too much, um, <laughs> like I was primarily a historian of sport and anti-fascism, and like specifically sport i got a ton of pushback on when i started because it's not mm. important right um mm-hmm. and it's not you know it's not like fucking I, d- I don't have any charts or whatever uh and um like it's actually very important it's where people were able to express uh who they were and who was on their team and who was not on their team right and that's where you find these people who are very impactful in lots of other areas and i think like if I was a younger person and I was trying to find my way, find my identity and be like, hey, does Zionism seems wrong, like in the same way that other things seem wrong, to have those people to be like, yeah, these people also saw that, right? Like they didn't want a boot on anyone's neck. Yeah. Uh, not, not just not, not, didn't want it to be their boot on someone else's neck and that was fine. You know, they'd like having seen the Holocaust, having seen what happened in Spain, they're yeah. like, nah, this shit is wrong. It's still wrong. It doesn't matter if we're doing it. Um, yeah, their humanity prevailed. You yeah, know, it's, and it's important for people like to have those uh, those stories to be like, okay, well, I'm not fucking crazy, mm-hmm. or it's not that I just don't understand what it was like back then, because exactly. a lot of people could see it and were like, no, nah, we shouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. Yes, wow, historian James, thank you for joining <laughs> yeah. me today. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> no, why are you like, apologizing? I love that shit. The fucking it's great. nerd. No, I love it. Uh, history from below is what you said. Yeah, that's quite an old theme now. But like, I mean, I think it's a good thing to to abide by. So I'm glad yeah. that there's a little catchy phrase it, for it. Stuart Hall and things like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll do another episode on this one day. Yes, please. So as we mentioned before, Israel stole about 78% of Palestine, and then this left 22%. And the 22% was compromised of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. And these regions fell under the control of Jordan and Egypt, respectively. In the 1967 war, the Israeli military occupied the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza, and Israel began colonizing them shortly afterwards. And just to give you some 
numbers. I, I, I think they're important sometimes just to get the context of the scale of something. But the Nakba by the numbers is uh, what I'm about yeah. to continue. Between 750,000 and 1 million Palestinians were expelled from their homeland and they were made refugees by Zionist militias, amounting to approximately 75% of all Palestinians. Between 250,000 and 350,000 Palestinians were driven out from their homes by Zionist militias between the passage of the UN Partition Plan on November 29th of 1947 and the establishment of Israel on May 15th of 1948, prior to the outbreak of war with the neighboring Arab states. Several dozen massacres of Palestinians were carried out by Zionist militias and the Israeli army, which played a critical role in prompting the flight of many Palestinians from their homes. More than 100 Palestinians, including dozens of children, women, and elderly people, were massacred in the Palestinian town of Deir Yassin, near Jerusalem on April 9th of 1948, by Zionist militia. This is the main massacre I want to talk about today because it's been exactly 75 years on April 9th. But it was one of many massacres, and it was the one that is cited as igniting a lot of like a domino effect. The massacre at Deir Yassin was one of the worst atrocities committed during the Nakba and a pivotal moment in Israel's establishment as a Jewish majority state. And again, it triggered the flight of Palestinians from their homes in Jerusalem and beyond. The Deir Yassin massacre is commemorated annually by Palestinians around the world. Approximately 150,000 Palestinians remained inside what became Israel's borders in 1948, a quarter of them internally displaced. These Palestinians, who are sometimes referred to as Israeli Arabs, were granted Israeli citizenship but stripped of most of their land and governed by violent, undemocratic military rule as of 1966. As of 2023, there are more than 2 million Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, comprising more than 20% of Israel's population, and they are forced to live as second-class citizens in their own homeland, subject to dozens of laws that discriminate against them in almost every aspect of life because they're not Jewish. Let's take our first break here, and I'll come back and tell you more terrible things. So, PRP. Okay, we're back. I'm going to finish up a little bit more of these numbers, and then I'm going to talk about Deir Yassin. Mm -hmm. More than 400 Palestinian cities and towns were systematically destroyed by Zionist militias and the new Israeli army, or they were repopulated with Jews between 1948 and 1950. Most Palestinian communities, including homes, businesses, houses of worship, vibrant urban centers, they were destroyed to prevent the return of their Palestinian owners who were now refugees outside of Israel's borders, or they were internally displaced inside them. Today, there are more than 7.2 million Palestinian refugees, including Nakba survivors and their descendants. They're located mostly in the occupied West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza, and neighboring Arab countries such as Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria, and they're denied their internationally recognized legal right to return to their homeland. This is the last big number I want to say, just because I think it's, it's so big I had to say it. Approximately 4,244,776 acres of Palestinian land was stolen by Israel during and immediately after the establishment of the state in 1948. Millions of acres. Like, it's not just a tiny little place that no one was in before. Like, no, millions of, of acres of land were forcibly stolen. Yeah. So, yeah. And all of them, like, land that people have had for generations that they've farmed. Like, this is 
like it's not the oldest settlement on earth but people have been living here for tens of thousands of yes. years I, yeah. I said Aluxa yesterday was built in 1035 like yeah this shit is very old and like sometimes the same people or people's sort of family have lived it's not just a like loss of property so mm-hmm. loss of everything that's sacred and, and like, like the Aluxa mosque or these things that are sacred and important to you you know um, yeah and yeah, similar to what you said earlier, it's like we have to remember these things because otherwise they'll get forgotten in the in whoever's recording the history. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. I mean they have been here, right? When we look at how America sees itself, it sees the land that it it it, it expanded into as like terra nullius, like like mm-hmm. empty land that that was unoccupied, which it was not. There was not a wilderness to tame. Like there were people living here, and they were living very happily, and they were living. In, they weren't like I don't want to do the whole like uh, like in in commune with nature thing, but like this it wasn't a wild and savage place, right? There were people existing here right? and taking from the land and living on the land, and like we that just doesn't get fucking like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was citing the doctrine of discovery, you know, like and all the libs love Ruth Bader Ginsburg, mm-hmm. but like it, it's so subsumed into what America is. Yeah. Uh, that like like it's Obama a, yeah. did a fucking tweet like this nation was built on peaceful protest it was built on fucking genocide <laughs> like, like fuck off yeah but we've allowed uh. that to just go completely forgotten right like you don't yeah. go to school in California and be like oh there is a fucking unit that just changed actually there was a Unipero Hesera high school and like this is a person who did genocide like like wow. we, we wouldn't have a fucking Goebbels high school in Germany uh you know, and, and Britain does a shit too. I'm not, not like, mm-hmm. a, you know, I'm in a glass house, so I don't say that. But uh, yeah, we, we, this wasn't an empty place. And it's really important to remember that because that is so often the talking point of fucking stupid people that try to defend what Israel is doing. Let's go to now the main massacre or topic I want to talk about today, which happened on April 9th in 1948, just weeks before the creation of the State of Israel. When members of the Ergun and Stern gang, Zionist militias, attacked the village of Dir Yassin, and they killed at least 107 Palestinians. Zionist militias tore through Palestinian villages, massacring villagers and expelling those who remained alive to clear the way for the creation of the State of Israel. And this was one of the many massacres that happened during the Nakba, where, again, an estimated 15,000 Palestinians were killed and some 750,000 fled their homes as refugees. It ignited a very terrifying domino effect. This year, the UN will host its first ever high-level event to commemorate this forced displacement that resulted in the establishment of the State of Israel in May of 1948. So this is the first time ever that the UN has recognized that the Nakba even happened or like is is, is it happened enough to mention it and commemorate it. But Palestinians have never ceased to commemorate the loss of each village that was once part of their homeland. Among them was Deir Yassin, and it was a village perched on a hill west of Jerusalem. And this massacre has become emblematic of the suffering that Israel would inflict on the Palestinians. Many of the people slaughtered, from those who were tied to trees and burned to death, to those lined up against a wall and shot by submachine guns, many of these people were women, children, and the elderly. And Farha does a really good job of showing this lack of discrimination of, of life in general in that movie that I mentioned earlier. As the news of these atrocities spread, thousands fled their villages in fear. 
So again, on April 9th of 1948, the Israeli militia struck Deir Yassin, where about 700 Palestinians lived. According to the Israeli narrative, Operation Nashon, N-A-C-H-H-S-O-N, apologies if I mispronounce that, but this operation aimed to break through the blockaded road to Jerusalem, and the fighters encountered stiff resistance from the villagers that forced them to advance slowly from house to house. It's kind of silly and strange how the same excuse is being used like a century later to justify acts of terror. They're saying that villagers resisted them, and that's why they butchered them. It's yeah. It's 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 pathetic. It's stupid and pathetic. And like yeah, for having the I don't know temerity to be like, no, you can't take my home. Yeah, they, they carried out a collective punishment on. Yeah, that. and that's the Israeli narrative. That's what their history books say is that this was the aim of this operation. They were simply encountering the stiff resistance, and they had to go from house to house. Like that's it's just a fucked up narrative. But Palestinians and some Israeli historians say that the villagers had signed a non-aggression agreement with the Haganah, which was the pre-Israeli state Zionist army. They were nevertheless murdered in cold blood and buried in mass graves. According to a 1948 report filed by the British delegation to the UN, the killing of, quote, some 250 Arabs, men, women, and children took place in circumstances of great savagery. Women and children were stripped, lined up, photographed, and then slaughtered by automatic firing. Those who were taken prisoners were treated with degrading brutality. This is from a 1948 report filed by the British delegation. Like, it's in yeah. the record. Weren't they both, like, the uh, the Stern Gang and the, uh, the whatever the militia was called that Begin was in, it's like IZL, I think, were, like... They hadn't really done any military operations before, right? They'd just been, they just like bomb, like they, they did car bombs and shit previous yeah. to this. Mm-hmm. Like, and the, the British had already, like, like they, they were, like, they were killing British people and, uh, I guess, uh, Arab pe- people in Palestine before mm-hmm. this. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, it, it, I mean, the escalation in violence was like pretty severe. Um, right. But I think they would have gotten there eventually. You know, they just kind of hit yeah, us yeah. forward. I think they'd already like established an intention or like a willingness to kill just about anyone who got in their way. Right. And they wanted to show that they were like, unlike the, like, I guess like the labor aligned Zionist movement, that they were mm-hmm. like more hardcore than that. And they didn't exactly they, like that's why they made a spectacle of violence like this. Mm-hmm. They're establishing their, their power and dominance. Right. Israeli historian Benny Morris said that the militias, quote, ransacked unscrupulously, stole money and jewels from the survivors and burned the bodies. Even dismemberment and rape occurred. I mean, there's nothing to say to that. Yeah. The number of dead is disputed, but it ranges from 100 to 250. A representative of the Red Cross who entered Deir Yassin on April 11th, two days later, they reported seeing the bodies of some 150 people heaped haphazardly in a cave, while around 50 were amassed in a separate location. Prominent Jewish intellectual Martin Buber wrote at the time that such events had been quote-unquote infamous. In Deir Yassin, hundreds of innocent men, women, and children were massacred, he said. Let the village remain uninhabited for the time being. Let its desolation be a terrible and tragic symbol of war and a warning to our people that no practical military needs may ever justify such acts of murder. 
He also noted that Dir Yassin had a profound demographic and political effect. And he's referring to the fact that the news of this massacre spread and it prompted hundreds of Palestinians to flee their homes. Four nearby villages were next, Qailunia, Seris, Beit Saruk, and Bedou. Dir Yassin was no mistake, according to Israeli historian Ilan Pape. Ilan Pape has been called a Israeli quote-unquote revisionist historian because he he tells the truth, the actual truth of what happened in their history. <laughs> yeah, the concept of revisionist history is nonsense. Uh, mm-hmm. Like it, it suggests that like there is a settled history at some point, which there's not, right? Like we're, we're always looking at sources again. We're always looking for new sources, different perspectives. It's not like there is like this monolith of history and then some meddling bastard comes and chops it down. Uh, it, it's fundamentally like misunderstanding how history is done. Uh, yeah. That's why you shouldn't pay attention to Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> uh, for that and many other reasons but yeah it, it's a ridiculous idea he's not he's not like it's not like everyone was like oh yeah this wasn't a bad thing and then he came along and like injected some kind of political animus into, into his history he, he yeah. came along and looked at maybe new sources maybe the same sources that people had i don't know and was like now nah, you you guys have uh, you got this wrong you, you yeah. called this wrong like but that's what historians do like you can't fucking write your PhD without disagreeing with someone or doing some new history. Like that's what takes you from a master's to a doctorate. And like, you're supposed to do three articles in a book to get tenure. Like mm-hmm. your, your articles can't just be like, yeah, we pretty much called this one right the first time, <laughs> you know, like, like the, the, yeah. the process of doing history is to revise and, and hope to better understand things from different perspectives. Totally. I, I like that. The point of history is to revise because you're right. Yeah. Uh, and I just think it's it's so discrediting of his work to call him a revisionist historian. It's, yeah, it's, it's condescending, you know. And if someone that interviewed him called him this, yeah, I mean, hopefully he gave them both barrels because it's it's kind of a ridiculous. Yeah, it shows that they fundamentally aren't qualified to be discussing the topic. I guess. Yeah, um, I want to talk about what he said, but I realized that I didn't take the last break, and I want to right now, and that is my choice. So okay. stay tuned. Proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. And we're back. We were talking about Ilan Pepe, a revisionist quote unquote historian, but not really. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he was called that because he was talking about Israel the way it was. It should be talked about with actual mm-hmm. historical facts. In one of his writings, Pepe wrote, "Depopulating Palestine was not a consequential war event, but a carefully planned strategy, otherwise known as Plan Dalet." which was authorized by the Israeli leader Ben-Gurion in March of 1948. Operation Nashon was, in fact, the first step in the plan. And, as I said, the massacre unleashed a cycle of violence and counterviolence that has been the pattern ever since this happened. Jewish forces have regarded any Palestinian village as an enemy state or a military base, And this has paved the way for this blurred distinction between massacring civilians and killing combatants, according to the historian. So what does all of this say about Israel's vision today? This is why I wanted to talk about this, is because this started this whole cycle of violence that we still see perpetuated today. And it's why Palestinians refuse to forget it and forget what happened. And they'll always talk about Palestine because they don't want to be erased from history books. Dir Yassin has become a powerful symbol of Palestinian dispossession, as well as a historical fact Israel must confront when retelling its national narrative. 
According to Pepe, given that terrorism is a mode of behavior that Israelis attribute solely to the Palestinian resistance movement, it could not be a part of any analysis or description of chapters in Israel's past. One way out of this conundrum, he says, was to accredit a particular political group, preferably an extremist one, with the same attributes of the enemy, thus exonerating mainstream national behavior. Israeli historians, as well as Israeli society, they've only been able to admit to the massacre in Dir Yassin by attributing it to the right-wing group Irgun, but have covered up or denied the other massacres, notably the one in Tantura in 1948. This was carried out by the Haganah, the main Jewish militia, from which the current-day Israeli military has evolved from. And despite this shift of blame, leading human rights organizations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have labeled Israel itself an apartheid state. I've just seen the worst ever op-ed in the Jerusalem Post about... About what? Tell me. It's, it's about this, uh, but it's about, like, the Nakba. Like, it, it, it contains, like, this kind of narrative that, like, oh, well, the Nakba was, was coined by, Pal- uh, by like, historians to, to, like, explain the failure of the Palestinians to defend themselves, mm-hmm. uh, which is, it's, like, a, a, like, what does that fucking matter? <laughs> uh, and, and B, like, what, what, are you, what are you saying? Like, well, yeah, like, that contains within it the notion that they would have to defend themselves from someone. Who was that? Mm-hmm. Um, and then like uh, like going back and forth on the number of people killed like which you know like low estimates are as low as like 107 high estimates are in the 250s um, based on claims that the militias themselves made right so like mm-hmm. again uh, what is it cool to kill like 100 people but 250 people is like you know mm-hmm. we should step in there uh, and and just like uh, I was just checking the author's affiliation because that's always fun. And he's uh, uh, a research fellow at the Menachem Begin Heritage Center. I, I may have mm. pronounced that incorrectly, but when the organization you work for is 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 is, is memorializing the heritage of one of the dudes who led the massacre, um, you might want to like um, step aside from. Yeah. I mean, or or not, right? But just <laughs> or just shut up. Just dive the fuck in, but like you, you are flying your flag as a, as a fairly party. Like I said, right? All historians are biased, but yeah. uh, yes, when like you know, if if uh, if I work at the Colonel Custer Heritage Center, like please take my account of the United States uh, like violent assault on the Lakota people with a pinch of salt, because like I'm I'm coming at this from a certain perspective. Uh, and yeah, it's here we are, twenty twenty three, still still doing the uh, doing the thing where we were yeah. like. Rather than just like taking the L and just being like, oh, like it's bad actually to to yeah. rape and mutilate and and murder people, trying to trying to equivocate. It's funny you mentioned articles though, because yeah. I just saw one when I was researching for Alexa yesterday uh, of this Israeli cop that admitted that the videos he saw was a bad look. Like that's what he said. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was just yeah. like <laughs> good cop. Uh, yeah, and of course the solution to that is to not allow people to take videos of you brutalizing. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the yeah, real that's issue. That's the solution. Yeah. yeah, Tim Apple, uh, no, known anti-cop. <laughs> yeah, anarchist. Um, so Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have labeled Israel as an apartheid state, and Human Rights Watch said in 2021. We reached this determination based on our documentation of an overarching government policy to maintain the domination by Jewish Israelis over Palestinians. As recognition grows that these crimes are being committed, 
The failure to recognize that reality requires burying your head deeper and deeper into the sand. Today, apartheid is not a hypothetical or future scenario. And I, apartheid is a very light word to use, but I did want to just mention that a an organization said that, not just like, uh, I don't know. There's just, there's, it's, it's officially on paper that Israel sucks. Like, why are we still defending it? I'm just like, go rewatch the Bernie Sanders video from yesterday, like, or audio, because there's no reason we should be funneling any kind of support into that country. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's mad. We still made a lot of money selling weapons to Israel that mm-hmm. are used against, like, um, I know Robert and I pursued a public records request for going on two years um, for, like, uh, these batteries that launch hundreds and hundreds of smoke grenades and flashbangs uh, that a U.S. company is, is selling to Israel, right? Wow. Like, yeah, like, it's great. They can fire them into a mosque. I mean, not surprising. No, it's just annoying. Well, annoying the, the the wrong word. But, like, yeah, there, there are people who make a lot of money every time things get more violent there, mm-hmm. right? And people who are very invested in that. Um, yeah and yeah that's ghoulish as fuck it is um and that's actually all i have uh that's a good a good place to end if any um but uh, i hope you learned something if you didn't know something in this episode and i hope you go watch farha or gods of fights for freedom i don't think this is history that should ever be understated or forgotten so i'm always more than happy to talk about it even if it's depressing. So thank you for <laughs> joining me today, James. It's okay. It's been very uplifting. I don't, but you're right. It's important. It's uh, it's very important. Um, hopefully one day we'll have the PK Gaza episode. For people yes, as that'll well. be great. Um, yeah. I guess if you're in the UK and have old copies of Men's Health, you can read about uh, young people doing Parker in Gaza. Um, it's pretty sick. I will have another story about that soon. But yes. yeah, where should people... I think a good thing, maybe if we could end on like... Uh, where where is a good place to find news about um, Palestine? Where can people- I really like Al Jazeera, especially their opinion pieces are pretty good because mm. a lot of the times they're written by people that are really passionate about what they're writing. Yeah, um, I think following actual Palestinians on social media is always yeah. a uh, good call. Like Mohammed Al Kurd is one of the most prominent voices recently that has been uplifted and i would follow his social medias his sister has one as well uh, his family's house was basically we had the threat of being demolished uh last year his house was in sheikh jarrah if you remembered any of that stuff from last year with the violence going on there um i also really like subhi taha he's on instagram mostly and he has a podcast now i would highly recommend following his stuff he is so informed and so uh just easy to understand too. So I would watch that. Um, yeah. And yeah, Mohammed al Kurd actually was on some news program, like, like face the nation or no, maybe not that, yeah. but he was on recently, uh, like basically uh, handing the asses of the people that were talking to him about Israel and Palestine. Um, <laughs> is that the right way <laughs> to say that? I don't know. He yeah. was just stating he was, he was, not willing to be uh, talked over and whatever. Yeah. Which I like. Yeah, he shouldn't be. Um, My friend Hossam is a photographer in Palestine. Um, Most of those Al Jazeera pieces you'll see are his photographs, actually. Wow. um, Hossam Salem G. uh, uh, He's a photographer. We've worked together before. But yeah, if if you're a person who likes to see pictures 
uh, his pictures are very good. Yeah, that's a good point too. Also, there are a lot of uh, accounts that are solely about Palestine, and a lot of these Palestinian activists follow them and share them. So you will find more organizations by following yeah. them. There is uh, Eye for Palestine. There's, I think it's like Land Palestine. Like I think there's a lot of really trusted accounts on the internet. You just have to find the the ones that are trusted and. Uh, a lot of the times it's stuff from the ground and that's the stuff that needs to be uh, seen and shared because if if there's going to be any upside to fucking internet and social media, it has to be to spread stuff like this around and make sure people know about it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it gives us a way to like get underneath that like hegemonic narrative and see what happens to real people every day. Yeah. So, yeah. That's that's all. <laughs> oh, okay, whatever. That's the episode. Bye. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hey and welcome to another episode of It Could Happen Here with me, Andrew, of the YouTube channel, Andrewism. And I'm joined today by... It's me, it's just James today. Just James. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a cringe band from the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) Really, I was not aware. Just out of curiosity, James, do you play um, any Paradox games? I don't. I don't know what that is. I don't think is that like okay, a type okay. is it like a type of computer game? Yeah, yeah, this was well it's like a a game development company and also they also distribute games as well. Okay. Um, yeah. 
you've hit an area about which I have very little knowledge indeed. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, this isn't sponsored. Um, it's just, uh, it's how I ended up stumbling upon this topic, right? Okay. So just, you know, humor me for a second here. So yeah, one of yeah. the Paradox games is um, Crusader Kings 3, right? Right, yeah. It's, uh, it's... <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I'm really interested to see where this goes. <laughs> so yes, it's a medieval grand strategy game. Um, right. It's sort of like, it's it's a combination of like, those classic sort of, well, grand strategy games. I know also a bit of Sims flair. Uh, you're okay. playing as a character and you're also playing as that character's dynasty. So you'd, be fit, you'd play as the grandfather and then the father and then the son and then the grandson and oh, so on okay. and so forth. Yeah. Um, and so I actually, if you can't tell, I play the game uh, yeah. sometimes a little bit too much. Um, but I appreciate the role play in the setting. It's it's set between either 867 or 1066 and 1453, which is considered the end of the medieval era due to mm-hmm. the fall of Constantinople to the Ottomans. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at a certain point in playing the game, after playing in pretty much every corner of the map, I was looking for a new religious movement to spread across the map for fun. Of course, this is something I do with my free time. And I started reading about all these different strands of Islam that they have in the game, Uh, like the Kamishans and the Ibadis and the Sufris. Yeah. And that led me to stumble across the Mu'tazilism and the Najadat. And please bear with me with pronunciations of everything I'm about to pronounce in this episode. (laughs) But, uh, Mu'tazilism and the Najadat uh, I started digging into this stuff and that led me to make the decision to talk about what I've been learning um, and before I begin I know even the idea of religious anarchisms is somewhat controversial particularly with the discrepancy between the anarchist slogan of no gods no masters and of course the history of various faith based uh, class struggles my stance yeah. on it is complicated, but whatever my stance is, I don't think we could deny the reality that religious anarchisms have existed in the past and still exist today. Now, I'm really interested in this. I'm um, I'm just I'm working on a book at the minute um, about uh, like an- anarchists at war, or like I guess how anarchism meets war, and uh, like, like people variously sort of defining our anarchism narrowly and widely. I, I grew grew up in the early two thousands, I guess, with like the kind of new anarchists, as Graeber called it. Um, right. And there were always amongst that broader movement, opposed to like neoliberal globalization, there were always religious people. Uh, and I'm not a religious person. And right. um, I went to a school where there was a priest, and the priest had been uh, a member of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, and um, was wanted there, oh, nice. and, and had left. <laughs> for doing violence again which like is pretty based and i i so like i have a lot of time for a lot of religious people and it's always been kind of an area of i guess interest to me um this like religious anarchisms yeah it it, it certainly it has a very uh eventful history yeah um so i wanted to talk a bit about the rather interesting history of just one tradition although the whole thing about the anarchism that I'm going to be discussing is that I wouldn't really call it anarchism. 
not at least not by our standards. Yeah. It's more of a distinct and notable resistance to centralized authority uh, or a minimization and decentralization of that authority. I think it's more akin to like a, a minarchism than an actual anarchism. Sure. Right. But it's still interesting to see, uh, I guess, the seeds of anti-authoritarianism through history, right? Yeah, um, very much so. So th- these particular movements, they have a sort of an anti-caliph, caliph being the religious leader mm-hmm. uh, in Islam. They have a kind of an anti-caliph action that expanded into broader philosophical and political conclusions. So we can start in the city of Basra in Iraq in the 800s, where a discussion was taking place regarding how the Ummah, uh, or Islamic community, should respond to a leader of the Abbasid Caliphate who had become corrupt and tyrannical. Now, the two mainstream opinions were that of the activists who believed in staging a violent revolution to instill a new legitimate leader, and the quietists who believed in patiently persevering under tyranny or passively resisting. It's funny how we see these kind of um, ideas about change uh, rearing their heads again and again and again throughout history, despite various different contexts. The other people were like, yeah, let's go get it. And the other people were like, eh, let's rock back a little bit and, <laughs> and, and take things a bit more passively. Yeah. So that's interesting, right? Um, now, Abu Bakr, the guy who was the first caliph, mm-hmm. uh, he made it clear in his inauguration that obedience is not incumbent upon his followers if he contradicts the will of Allah. And for those who don't know, Allah is God in the Islamic religion. Um, and yet the dominant position uh, in Islam has been the quietest position, even to this day. The activist position is less popular, some would say. Some people have this idea that the only manifestation of Islam can be the one seen in the autocracies of Western Asia and the Arabian Peninsula. But even back in Islam's heyday, there were Muslims willing to resist the tyrannical control of even religiously ordained rulers. So back to Basra in the 800s. There was also a third category of solutions proposed, which we can call anarchist in the general sense, but not really in the actual sense. Yeah. Um, most of the Muslim anarchists believed that society could function without the caliph. They proposed a kind of evolutionary anarchism where private property was not abolished per se, but because the ruler was considered illegitimate, the titles of property the ruler granted would also be considered illegitimate. They also argued that the caliph must be agreed upon by the entire community, which is no easy task considering how Islam divided between Sunnis and Shias almost immediately after the Prophet Muhammad died. However, Without this consensus, no legitimate caliph could exist, and it was widely accepted that Allah did not impose obligations that were impossible to fulfill. So then it was reasoned that then there was really no obligation to establish a legitimate caliph if no consensus could be found. So it's a little loophole, basically. We need full consensus. We're never going to get full consensus. Oh, well. Shrug. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then at the time, in the context, remember this is you know, medieval times, you're seeing a lot more uh, uh, 
you're seeing several different political configurations and formations and ways of organizing society. So some of them at the time were seeing their neighbors, the Bedouins, and the Bedouins were living without rulers like normal. So they were like, well, why can't we live without rulers like normal? Um, So they used that as a justification as well. And so they also had many proposed solutions ranging from a radical decentralization of public authority to a complete dissolution of public authority. One particular genre of proposals involved replacing the caliph with elected officials, either completely independent of each other or joined together in a federation. And these elected officials would be temporary and only remain in office when legal disputes arose or when an enemy invaded. When the problem was resolved, they would lose their position and society would return to, quote-unquote, anarchy. There was even a minority sect which called for the complete abolition of the state, called the Najdiya. And they argued that if there wasn't sufficient agreement to establish the caliph, there could never be enough to establish law at all. They wanted not just political independence, but intellectual independence. Because, according to them, individuals should be able to reason for themselves and have no one above them but Allah. Basically, the religious uh, anarchist slogan, um, one God, no masters. <laughs> yeah. Right? But don't get it twisted, of course. All this radical stuff uh, applied to them within their group alone. So if you weren't part of their group, you could still be enslaved or killed. So it's kind of a selective. Mm. Yeah, oh dear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit selective in their uh freedom mindedness. Yeah. Then in 817, so a couple of years later, the center of religious power in the Muslim world collapsed. With the fall of Baghdad, the chaos of civil war ensued. Uh, but in the absence of public authority there would naturally emerge an order out of the chaos without central planning. As we've seen again and again and again throughout history, people self-organize to protect themselves and their positions collectively. In times of natural disaster, in times of crisis, people come together without having a state having, without a state having to organize them and tell them what to do and how to do it. Yeah. Such has been the case for centuries. And speaking of centuries, we're going to jump ahead a little bit to the 12th century, where we could see a sort of a pseudo-nihilist anarchist movement called the Kalandaria, uh, a movement of wandering ascetic Sufi dervishes from Andalusia and Spain to Iran, Central Asia, India, and Pakistan. Many of the Kalandaria had body piercings and tattoos in explicit defiance of Islamic traditions that regarded such practices as haram. Here's a bit of an interesting story. Uh, one of the earlier dervishes of the Malatamiya was once being followed by a crowd of admirers. And in reaction to their praise, he paused, pulled out his peepee, <laughs> and urinated on the ground. So it's a sort of a radical, it's almost like, um, what's the name of that Greek guy? Oh, um, the one who like, uh, Di- it begins with a D. Diogenes. Right. So he kind of like a, a Muslim Diogenes. <laughs> um, a sort <laughs> of a rejection of society and a rejection of its values. As so a lot of people, a lot of these dervishes, they chose voluntary poverty and nomadism as a lifestyle. They would reject civilization. They would have an, the sort of an active nihilism directed at society. 
one of them has been quoted in saying, in effect, that money is, well, I don't know if I could say that. Uh, we could probably cross that out. <laughs> I think we, um, I think we get, we get the, uh, get the idea. Of course, again, not really anarchism in the classical sense or in an actual sense, but a manifestation of one trend within, um, or one streak within an anarchist movement. So we can jump ahead again to the 19th century now, with perhaps the first anarchist to convert to Islam, Ivan Agrelli, born in Sweden in 1869. Agrelli was interested in philosophy, spirituality, ideology, and literature, and he explored new ideas ravenously. Um, he joined the Theosophical Society in France, and he met anarchist philosopher Peter Kropotkin in London in 1891. Uh, he also began reading the Quran around 1892 and converted to Islam in 1897. And wrote about Islam and anarchism fairly frequently, but he didn't really connect them together. However, there was another one, uh, another anarchist who converted to Islam, Isabel Eberhardt. Uh, she grew up in Geneva and converted to Islam around 1896 or 97. Um, and she challenged both Eastern and Western norms through her writings and praxis, pursuing a nomadic lifestyle in Nigeria, joining a Sufi order, and expressing her unconventional spirit by dressing as a male when she felt like it, taking on a male name and pursuing a lifestyle of purported promiscuity, journalism, smoking keef, and journeying across the North African desert by horse. Um, I think she would also be considered a figure of queer anarchist history. Um, I wasn't able to find anything about how she identified personally, but apparently, um, I, so I don't know if she was a cross-dresser or if she was trans or uh, something yeah. else entirely. Right, like you get, especially in that period, like uh, like misogyny is, is so rampant that like it could be necessary to like... I guess to present as male, even if if you weren't like trans in your gender identity, just to have access to things that were constrained or like delimited as male, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's wise to just be like we don't know, rather than to necessarily like lay claim to someone's identity stuff when all we know is their presentation stuff. Agreed. Also, during this time in the Ottoman Empire. There was a not insignificant population of European anarchists, mostly Italians. In Alexandria alone, there were approximately 12,000 Italians living and working, often in the building sector. By 1876, anarchists there had organized a branch of the Syndicalist International Workers Association. And in the early 1800s, Enrico Malatesta and other Italian anarchists joined the Urabi uprising against the British. And this was perhaps the first time that Muslims and anarchists fought a military campaign side by side. Although the uprising was squashed, anarchists were less harassed in the Ottoman Empire than in many other parts of Europe. Later on in 1901, anarchists co-founded a free popular university, the Université Popular Libre, or UPL, in Alexandria. 
It provided free courses on subjects like Tolstoy's and Bakunin's ideas, the arts, pragmatic topics like work negotiation strategies, etc., etc., etc. However, comma, if you were indigenous to the region, tough luck. Indigenous no. Muslim and indigenous Muslims and Arabic speakers weren't really part of the UPL's uh, program, weren't really included, pretty much marginalized from the education entirely. And the UPL gradually became more and more aimed toward and controlled by upper class interests. So that sucks. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, lame. Very lame. Yeah, a lot, a lot of disappointments in this episode. People who are like nearly there and then kind of fail, of course. A yeah. <laughs> but that's 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 part of history, right? Jumping ahead even more, yeah. in the 20th century, we got to see the fall of the caliphate in 1924 and two new influential currents of Salafism or Salafism. Yeah. The Muslim Brotherhood, which is known for their social democratic leanings, and the Saudis, who are known for their monarchic leaders, yeah. uh, to put it lightly. Yeah, that's a good uh, even so, <laughs> Yeah, to put sure. it as generously as possible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we even saw later on a sort of an Islamic liberation theology developing that dismissed bin Laden as senseless and lifted up the examples of the revolutionary Babi movement of the 1800s, Malcolm X, and Ali Shariati's quest for a just and classless society. Then there was also a neo-Sufi group known as the Murabutin, the Murabitun, and the Inclusive Mosque Initiative in London, as other examples of you know how Islam could be used to resist some Islamic traditions. And there were also several individuals today who have explicitly and publicly self-identified as Muslim anarchists. Not Muslim and anarchists, but specifically Muslim anarchists, including Abdinur Prado and Mohammed Jean Venus. That's cool. So that's a sort of a basic rundown. Um, mm-hmm. But I think inevitably these sort of topics these sort of fraught ideas something like an Islamic anarchism there are going to be some challenges and criticisms right yeah um, I like for one you know it's a fairly new concept the idea of Islamic anarchism like I went over there were certain trends that can be described as anarchic if you're being generous um, but the idea of Islamic anarchism as in something born out of the after development of anarchism and through anarchism as a political philosophy, it's fairly new. Um, and it challenges a lot of the traditional Islamic teachings on authority and governance. So some scholars and practitioners have pointed out that with the emphasis of social order, with the emphasis of authority of the state and the rule of law, this idea of rejecting hierarchy and authority as advocated by Islamic anarchists, uh, is, you know, heretical, practically. There's also some criticism that with Islamic anarchism's rejection of all forms of authority and hierarchy, um, it undermines the concept of Taweed, which is the belief in the oneness of God. Um, and by, you know, rejecting that, by undermining that concept and promoting individualism and self-rule, it sort of 
goes against that teaching. Of course, like I mentioned earlier, there's also this challenge to the idea that Islamic anarchism or Islamic anarchism could be compatible because of the slogan, no cause, no masters, right? Um, of course, Islamic anarchists and other Islamic socialists would argue that Islam should be seen as a liberating force that can help individuals achieve freedom from oppression and exploitation. The same argument is made with a lot of other f- strands of religious anarchisms as well. Uh, and so to bring things to a, a sort of a close, I'd say that, um, you know, like every religious anarchism, like every political philosophy, like every religion, like everything, honestly, people pick and choose, you know? In Islam, you can find elements of quietism as well as activism, detached mysticism as well as pragmatic daily concerns, traditions of violence and traditions of non-violence, moderation and extremism. In anarchism, tensions exist between pacifism and insurrectionism, syndicalism and individualism, nationalism and anti-nationalism, collectivism and individualism, again. Uh, And I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a religious anarchist of any variety, but I think that there is room for, even if I may not agree with it in all cases, the conclusions some people draw, I think there's room for these sorts of dialogues to be had. Um, I think there's room for exploration to the history of all sorts of uh, historical movements and ideologies and religions and ideas. Um, because, I mean, there's a whole legacy of billions of people who have lived and died long before us. And I think I find it interesting, at least as a thought exercise, um, to see how they came to their conclusions as well. So I hope this episode was thought-provoking, enlightening, and interesting to those who tuned in. Yeah, it's always interesting to see these. Yeah, like we don't have to agree with all of it, but I think it's interesting to see where people come at these things from. Um, It was... I was wondering if you were going to get to or not, but like one of the things that you saw in um, the Spanish, like not really the civil war as much, but in the second Republic was the socialists and, and like left liberals explicitly selling out uh, like Moroccan Muslim people and North African people more generally, whatever their faith and anarchists being like, no, we should express solidarity with these people. Like even, if if we if they are or aren't and some of them were part of like they like they were anarchists in Spanish North Africa of course but like even if they weren't being like we should oppose colonialism right. and uh, like when every other kind of left stripe didn't um, and it's kind of one of the failings of the republic not to so yeah there've been these conversations I guess for a long time and like it was interesting to hear about those Sufis in Spain uh, and think about how long those conversations have been going back and forth you know. Exactly, exactly. I think the whole Iberian Peninsula is a really interesting region in terms of the confluence of cultures. Uh, I did miss that particular um, historical instance in my research without pointing it out. Yeah, no worries. I'm a big nerd for that stuff. <laughs> is there anything you'd like to plug before we go, Andrew? Sure, sure. Uh, so you can find me on YouTube at Andrewism, uh, on patreon.com slash St. Drew. 
and I've logged off of Twitter. But if you want to get <laughs> the hero. updates, uh, when I do decide to log in to post updates here and there, you could follow me on Twitter at underscore St. Drew. Thank you, Andrew. Take care, everyone. Peace. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Oh, boy. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and sometimes stuff that's less depressing than that. This is going to be a mix of both of those things. Uh, I'm Robert Evans. My co-hosts for today uh, are James Stout and Mia Wong. How are we both? How are we all? How's everybody? How's everybody feeling? I'm anticipating eagerly. Uh, the the topic of today's episode. So I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Like a kid at Christmas. Yeah. So James, that answers my question for you. But Mia, have you ever heard of Lord Miles Rutledge? (laughs) I have seen him on Twitter. And I I, I cannot express how excited I am for this. (laughs) So... We are talking about a real piece of shit today. This um, this is kind of relevant to our. I try to always justify, you know, our purview is is broadly speaking collapse. You know what we call the crumbles, and and Miles Rutledge is a perfect example of the kind of grifters and con men who sort of sort of seep in at the edges of war and disaster and calamity and have for forever. You know, in behind the bastards, um. 
we we've done a couple episodes on like different uh white people who tried at various points to like conquer latin american nations in like the the 17 and 1800s um just kind of during these periods of of there would be a bunch of rebellions going on and so like some group of mercenaries would be like i bet we can like steal Nicaragua, right? Let's yeah. get, it's, it's worth a shot, you know? Yeah. Um, you get these kind of like, these kind of people and and Lord Miles Rutledge is sort of the lower body count end of that, um, but in some ways a lot more frustrating because at least, look, there's, there's something respectable about trying to violently conquer another country and then getting murdered yourself. There's at least like a, a degree of honesty there. This guy, Miles Rutledge is like purely... But like doing war tourism uh, in order to like pump his his TikTok and his Instagram and his YouTube. Um, And I find that worse than like, I don't know, those guys who tried to overthrow Venezuela and got captured by fishermen. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So they were great. Yeah, and then laid in their own piss on camera. Beautiful story. Perfect story. Took a BB gun with them. (laughs) 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 such a good story um and this one has a similar this story thankfully miles's story has has a is an ending almost that satisfying so miles rutledge was born on james actually i'm gonna i'm gonna bring you in for a second how do i spell this last name r-o-u-t-l-e-d-g-e he's british as hell Routledge? Unbelievable. Yeah, it's Routledge. If it's the same as the academic publisher, which you, mm. which is spelled the same, then then it's Routledge. And look, right. I, I don't give a fuck about how this guy feels, so let's just say it however we want. Yeah, okay. Um, so Miles Routledge was born on September 14th, 1999. Probably somewhere near Birmingham. Uh, he had, I don't think we have like, a, a, like it's just kind of based on shit he said, but okay. you know, I don't see why he'd prob- he'd lie about that. I don't think people brag about coming from Birmingham just <laughs> yeah, for like yeah, a clout. Yeah, it's not one of the like, <laughs> yeah, one of the more glam yeah, detentions. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, thanks to generations of medical advancements, he survived to adulthood because he does strike me as the kind of person who wouldn't have done that in like the 1800s. He got into the University of, I'm going to need your help here again, James, yeah. Loughborough? 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 Unbelievable. <laughs> Amazing! That sounds like a- <laughs> That, that, that sounds like an incredibly obscure World War II German aerial division or something. Yeah, yeah, the Luftbruch, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's like the very bro-y ch- section of the Luftwaffe, yeah. So uh, he gets into the University of Luftbro as a fucking physics student, um, uh, or so he says. And sometime within the last two years, he got an internship at an investment banking firm. Um, oh, so, this is a kind yeah, of guy. It, we, a kind yeah. of guy is emerging. Uh, he, he, he's laser targeted on a on a career as a giant piece of shit. Yeah, but I haven't found much in my casual research about his financial situation or how much money he was born into. But I think he was like, I'm going to guess his parents were at least comfortable because as a young man still in college, he had the funds to travel pretty extensively. Starting in 2019, when he visited the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Now. This is one of the most popular destinations in the world for what is called dark tourism. And this is largely, this is people who live kind of boring lives otherwise, traveling to places that sound scary in order to impress people on like TikTok or whatever. Now, I just said that, but like, I don't think there's anything wrong. Like uh, now there's like a lot of 
problems with getting to Chernobyl because of the war. But like prior to the expanded innovation, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to like see Chernobyl. My 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 thinking on like the ethics of going somewhere dangerous or whatever is like, are you increasing the odds of like causing a problem that diverts medical resources or other resources in a way that like harms people who have no choice in being there, right? And visiting Chernobyl, whatever. You're not really putting anyone at risk, so that's fine. Um, and But in May of 2021, though, uh, Miles Rutledge made the decision to plan a trip to somewhere that it was distinctly not fine to visit as a tourist, Afghanistan. Now, <sighs> he decided to head over there during kind of the end stages of the war, although if you guys can remember back that far... <laughs> Um, the collapse of the the Afghan government that the United States had backed happened more rapidly than most people had predicted. So it it, it was kind of like less clear, I think, when he booked his trip that things were going to fall apart quite that quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, a few Marines yeah. who feel the same way about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's one of those things where, like, um, Miles, you know, he, he his his plan to go there was, again, not as like, he's not heading there as a journalist. There's not like a story he wants to tell. He's not traveling there for kind of a practical purpose. Like he, he really does frame this as just he wanted to go on vacation. And he wanted to go on vacation specifically for what I think is probably like the dumbest reason I've ever heard of anyone choosing a vo- vacation location, especially choosing fucking Afghanistan uh, as a vacation location. I'm going to play a clip from one of his YouTube videos now. Why am I in Afghanistan? Well, that's a really good question. During COVID lockdowns, Afghanistan was the only country open without a vaccine mandate, so I just went. <laughs> I've never heard his voice before. I know, I'm, I'm more angry now. <laughs> he he goes to Afghanistan because they don't have a fucking vaccine mandate. <laughs> oh my fucking yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. real uh, warrior for freedom. Yeah, just just the just the dumbest idiot. I I I I hate him. Um so anyway, as a result of wanting to avoid the vaccine mandate, Miles joined the long and historic line of young British men who have gone out to Afghanistan on a lark. Unfortunately, unlike many of them, Miles would survive his adventure. Um, He does not seem to have a regular Wikipedia yet, but he does have an entry on something called Everybody Wiki, um, which, yeah, yeah, which um, I hadn't heard of that one before, but it, it, it's, it very hilariously lists his occupation as, quote, posting online during the 2021 siege of Kabul. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, That's great. That's, that's actually pretty funny. Tim Kennedy. That's great. So for obvious reasons, he encountered difficulties. Uh, He wound up sleeping by the side of the road one night. He was taken into Taliban custody. Um, While he makes a big deal out of this, I actually don't think he was ever in serious danger, particularly not compared to, for example, the people fighting and dying or the civilians in cities taken by the Taliban who had to endure an often violent change of regime. When the Taliban was taking over here, you know, obviously there's the danger of like, accidents on the road, which is always a significant danger in a place called like Afghanistan. There's the danger of, you know, being caught up in a fight or something potentially. But the Taliban in this kind of late stage of their takeover had no desire to harm a British citizen like Miles or to harm like, you know, Americans who were in the country. Um, And in fact, were working kind of in the later stages of the U.S. evacuation to try to make sure it happened 
peacefully, not because the Taliban are such good guys, but because like there's no geopolitical benefit to them from like a yeah. random British traveler dying. It's just going to cause problems for them. Um, yeah, it's just not worth the stress and bother. Yeah, like they didn't have like I don't believe they were the Taliban was ever like th threatened his life in any way. No. Uh, Miles, though, posted through it, reporting that he was stuck in a pickle uh, and giving details of his experience to fans on 4chan and Twitch. He started <laughs> using the name James. You had asked about this. He started yeah. using the name Lord Miles due to the fact that he had purchased a 15 pound lordship certificate <gasps> as a bit. I knew uh, it. I uh, fucking yeah, knew uh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that surprising, huh? <laughs> what a cunt! I can't say that. Uh, sorry. Uh, we'll no, you can. You're, you're, you're British. It's fine. Okay, Daniel. Yeah, leave that one in. I, that is my yeah. sincere conviction. Um, <laughs> I, what a twat! Mm -hmm. Sorry. What an absolute prick. Because mm -hmm. he's. What's really fucking frustrating? What everything about his existence is frustrating, right? But it's like, so is. What's so <laughs> annoying is he's playing this fucking twee parochial version of Britishness for an exclusively an American audience, right? If you're born near yeah. fucking Birmingham, like we're not all, all like we are not all Pride and Prejudice people. And, and if you move to another country, you will constantly encounter people thinking you grew up in Harry Potter land. But like, yeah. we're not all turfs either. Um, but like, he's fucking doing it, like, and he's doing it like a naive American, like. There are like the Scottish Parliament has made statements about not buying these stupid Scottish titles. Uh, <sighs> uh, yeah, here's a prick. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very silly. He justified this by saying, because I think he buys it while he's in Afghanistan. He explained <laughs> to his followers, the Taliban may see that as a reason to keep me alive, thinking it may up. hold some negotiating powder, power as they'll think I'm important. They don't care. They yeah. don't want any fucking Westerners dying in the country because it'll fuck up their chances of like, you know, they want to get integrated to the like fucking global economy. They want to qualify for like loans and shit like they don't want to. They don't want the problems that you dying bring. Like you yeah, being a yeah. lord has not going to impact yeah. this in any way. Yeah, yeah, and they, and they don't. I don't want like the British government deciding like, oh shit, they killed someone. Now we need to just yeah. bomb like Kabul for eight months yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Now. I don't want to say in his defense, because I would not like to speak in his defense, but I will say that the one person who might be conned by a lordship you bought online is Boris Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that might have an impact. Yeah, you're right. That could have an impact on Bojo. <laughs> you might. Yeah, but in, 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 his, in his not defense, it's not like Bojo's going to be sticking around for very long, right? You, you have to, like, you every, 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 like, seven weeks, you are rolling a dice as to whether the conservative PM is someone you can con with a lordship title. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, none of them in the last few years have been what I would call intellectual titans. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, but, 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 hope springs eternal. Rishi Sunak's in trouble too, so yeah, they, yeah. they they might I don't know put well, well, we someone might get in. Braverman or some shit. Just <laughs> really go down the uh, the fast road. I really I feel sorry for you all across the pond. I can't imagine what it would be like to have your politicians be national laughingstocks. I mean, that's just got to be <laughs> that's just got to be hard. No American. Would yeah, we'll know. We'll ever know what that's like. Yeah, we we, we are ruled by the hero of Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I, w I was going to talk about you know my hero, the governor of Florida, and his best friend, the pedophile who just committed suicide. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. Is this a different pedophile? No, this is the pedophile who like backed Santis's like early political rise and now just yeah. killed himself after he got exposed. 
Oh, so this no, this no, isn't Ali Alexander. Okay, never mind. No, no, right, no. I'm... This is a different pedophile. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm losing track of the GOP pedophiles. There's too many. They, oh, every every God, day God, there's God. a new one. I can't. I can't keep and track. It's, it's not Matt Gates, his other friend, who's also a pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear. Now you know who I cannot prove at this point is a pedophile. Miles Rutledge. So let's get back to his story, <laughs> please. Um, so he also claimed during this period where he's kind of like quote unquote on the run um, that the 4chan users he was posting with kept him alive mm. by giving him updates on tele- Taliban progress through OSINT as they advanced through Kabul. Um, that's broadly speaking, not impossible. So the idea that Miles, again, I, I don't believe he was ever threatened by the Taliban. They are, again, not nice people, but they're not like unhinged. They're not ISIS, you know? They they are a government. Uh, they, they don't have a benefit yeah. in something bad happening to someone like him. Um, so Miles, though, played up the idea that he was something between a tourist, a journalist, and a philanthropist, billing his trip to Afghanistan as a, quote, little charity thing, at the same time as he said that he was prepared for death when he couldn't immediately <laughs> secure a way out of the country. Eventually, a United Nations safe house took him in, and he was given a seat on Whoa. one of the last planes out of the country. Now, oh this is God. an actual act Mate. of evil. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. frustrating. Fuck. Because, like... There are people in danger from the Taliban who had no, couldn't leave, right? Like, he yeah. took one of their spaces. Somebody didn't get out yeah. who is in danger because of him. Yeah, like, very good friends of mine. Like, I spent much of that time, like, I've, I've written about Afghanistan. I've worked yeah. with translators. And, and, like, good friends of mine, some, some of them left Afghanistan, but many of them still have their families there, right? And every yeah. single day they have anxiety about whether their families are okay, if something terrible has happened to them. Yeah, and this twat is just like sitting on a plane posting on 4chan. It, like that makes me properly angry. Yeah, it's it's, and that's again what I was talking about. Like if you're going to, if you're gonna go to a place that is that is beset by conflict, you know, by civil war, by violence or anything like that, number one, you have responsibility to like have a reason to go beyond, I wonder what it's like. Um, and you have a responsibility to not make things worse for people who don't have a choice about being there. And he did, you know, that's like fundamentally why I hate this guy is he absolutely took an opportunity to escape from, I don't know, some woman's rights activist or something, you know, some, somebody who, or some terp or something, somebody who didn't have a choice about fucking being stuck in Afghanistan. Yeah. Just some fucking Um, person who wanted a fair crack at life and and, and isn't a prick. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, and he could have stayed. I have friends who stayed yes. through that time and covered it. Like your concern is for your sources, not yourself. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or you could have done the thing that his ancestors did and just walk across the border yeah, into exactly. fucking Pakistan. <laughs> like, <laughs> like your ancestors did this. This is the yeah, one thing exactly. I'll give them credit exactly. for is they yeah. ran like hell. <laughs> it's like hike through the Khyber Pass <laughs> and then become Sherlock Holmes's best friend. You yeah. know, that's a proud <laughs> yeah. tradition. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I thought you were going to go with Daimir, which would have also been a very acceptable. Well, that's well, that's, all, that's but, another proud tradition: you know, getting it, sniped by a Giselle in the fucking uh, <laughs> Kyber Pass. Absolutely. Yeah. So. <clears throat> He had a marvelous time in Afghanistan and immediately pivoted because he built up a big social media following around his posts there, pivoted to a career as a dark tourist influencer. He traveled next to an Ireland, uh, not an Ireland, he traveled next to an (laughs) island in Brazil. There's this island off the coast of Brazil that like like, you're not allowed to go to because there's so many fucking snakes. 
Like, it's just, it's extremely <laughs> dangerous to go there because it's covered in fucking snakes. And he, like, went there wearing armor, but he didn't actually run into any snakes because <laughs> snakes don't like, you know, they're, they're not generally aggressive, most of them. Um, he got arrested in Kenya for, as best as I can tell, being a prick near a refugee camp. Um, and then he, he traveled Oof. to Ukraine right yeah. after the expanded invasion to Ukraine to try to make the suffering of hundreds of thousands of people about him. Um, <sighs> the highlight of that trip Jesus was Christ. he claims that he drove a woman and her kid out of the country and rescued them and also brought people snacks. Um, whatever. <laughs> uh, Miles has always been two things. He's deeply enmeshed in right-wing meme culture, and he is at least superficially committed to Christian extremism. He is like kind of a, a at least it like signals as a fundamentalist Christian. He's like he's super fashy, right? Like this is not <clears throat> yeah. like a, a a hidden thing with within his videos and stuff. I found one write-up of him on a right-wing uh, religious news website that gives you an idea of how he builds himself to his ideal audience. Miles Routledge is a self-described Catholic independent war journalist and charity on the ground. At just 21, he headed to Afghanistan when the Taliban seized control. And now he's in Ukraine giving refreshing updates that are peppered with humor, reality, and a little naivete. In the past, Routledge went to war-torn countries and into areas no NGO or charity dared to go, according to his GoFundMe page, so he can hand out Bibles, food, medicine, and money. Um, <laughs> well, there's a special place in hell for some yeah, giving a starving yeah. person a Bible. Fuck yeah, and also. Hell. Like, he never went to places other people wouldn't dare to go. Uh, I will guarantee you everywhere he went, there were already, like, people like the Free Burma Rangers or even Medicine Sans Frontiers uh, or Journalists Without Borders. Like, there were there were people there um, because he was he's, not, he's not, like, I've seen his videos. He's not going anywhere special. Yeah. Yeah, there's, how, how, many, how many people are in Kabul? Like, 10 million people? Yes, these are yeah. big cities. Like, they, he, he's no, four million off, people, sure. He's but. playing off of kind of the <laughs> the provincialism of his audience and the fact that most people in the West, when they hear Afghanistan or now Ukraine, when they hear it, or like even like a place like Kenya, which is like a massive country with major cities and all sorts of stuff, like yeah. that, like oh, these places are just death traps and you don't go there. And like, no, man, even yeah. like I would get this when I'd go to. I've spent a lot visited Iraq seven or eight times, and it's like. No, man, it's like most of it's just a country. Like, yeah, there's specific things yeah. you have to keep in mind that are dangerous, but like, it's just a place. Like, millions of people live there and don't die every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is ludicrous to suggest that he was in any. Di yeah, like, you could go to all these places and stay in a five star hotel and, and yeah. like. Did you're not in any danger, especially as a rich white British guy parading around being. Yeah. A uh, to the extent that he's like in Ukraine and traveling near the front where there's like random yeah. missiles and shelling. Yeah, there's some danger. But again, it's danger that he is exposing himself to unnecessarily and then creating a situation whereby if he is injured, th that's a, a bunch of morphine and antibiotics that can't go to a fucking right. civilian who had no choice because they were raised in Konstantinivka or whatever, you know? Like, yeah, fuck him. Yeah, uh, yeah like, he's a prick. It, yeah. Yeah. Just so, morality free. I mentioned a little earlier, he's definitely a fascist. And, you know, when I say that, sometimes people do the whole, oh, you lefties will call anything a fascist. 
don't worry, I have some receipts on this one. <laughs> so shortly after his famous trip to Afghanistan, he published a book about his very brief time in the country. This book included some interesting claims, like that he was the last person to enter the country on a tourist visa before the fall of Kabul, and that his visa had required a personal statement explaining his reasons for visiting. He wrote, quote, My response was simply an A4 sheet of paper with only the word fun written on it. It was accepted without question. I was ready for my very own white boy summer. He also notes that the last, uh, yeah, right, um, which was at the time kind of like a meme in, you know, fashy online Nazi yeah. circles. It was all over Telegram. He Came also from, notes- uh, Chet Hanks, yeah, Tom yeah, Hanks' is Ch- uh, very problematic yeah. child. Yeah, although not problematic in this sense. Chet did not, I think, mean for that to happen. Um, he's just problematic no. in other ways. So no, he I also agree. notes that the last thing he did before leaving <laughs> was rewatch American Psycho, which he described as a sacred male experience. I will remind you all that that is a movie directed by a woman. Um, he also <laughs> writes about the fact that he ordered a meal at the airport before leaving, but decided not to eat it because it was likely filled with soy. He goes on like a whole diatribe about how Afghanistan's probably safer for him because there's no soy in the food. Um, just <laughs> so the weird right wing so memes and signaling, all of which are like he's always like a year or two out of date on his like far yeah. right signaling and stuff, too, which is weird. All of it makes a little more sense when you realize that the book that he wrote about Afghanistan was published with Antelope Hill Publishing. Oh, which is a, oh, yeah. Yeah. James, <laughs> you recognize that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's coming in from um, the far right. Of the, yeah, uh, yeah, sphere. yeah. It is an explicitly fascist uh, publisher. So. On the Antelope Hill page for his stupid book, the recommended books beneath it, you know, you've got the main book and it's like, this is, rec- if you like this book, read these books, are a collection of, one of the books is a collection of speech uh, speeches from Kai Muros, who is a Finnish right-wing activist who was formerly a Maoist, but is now a white nationalist revolutionary advocate who suppo- supports total racial war against asylum seekers and immigrants. He advocates for an uprising in the UK in, in which all university staff will be executed by death squads. So he, has, uh, like, he hasn't gone that far from the Maoism. So not that far from the, like, look, there's still pieces of it. So the next book that's recommended, if you're interested in Miles's book, is The Death Company, which is a firsthand account of the Italian Arditi in World War I that was very influential among early fascists. Uh, and then there's Let Them Look West by Marty Phillips. I found a review of this book on a website called The White Art Collective, and I'm going to read a quote from that now. Oh, no. So this is a Nazi <laughs> reviewing this book by a Nazi, right? Good stuff. Yeah. Here, here's him describing the book. Rob Cohen is a big city writer sent on assignment to interview James Alexander, the governor of Wyoming, a fundamentalist Christian who has revived his state with, among other things, a Christian-themed public works program, and Mount Calvary, an artificial mountain which villagers climb up and pass the Stations of the Cross, then view a live-action recreation of the crucifixion with music by a live choir. The first few chapters, until Rob meets Alexander, feel like a deadpan satire of Apocalypse Now. Rob didn't want a mission, but for his sins he was given one. He's a fish out of water who has to navigate and improvise his way to the goal. There's a magical realism vibe to the book, despite nothing overly supernatural occurring. And maybe this is why Phillips calls it a mundane fantasy. But it's also a mundane fantasy for the simple reason that the America and Wyoming described in the book are so far beyond what is possible that suspension of disbelief is required. Um, Even the Nazi seems like to think it's kind of a shit book, uh, which is very funny to me. So again, if you publish your book with Antelope Hill, like you are 
comfortable, at the very least, comfortable with having your book advertised next to explicitly Nazi power fantasies. Yeah, I mean, um, you're not going to Antelope you know, like I, <laughs> we've both published books. Like, yeah, I don't, it wouldn't have occurred to me to even try. Yeah, they, they are the Nazi, one of the Naziest publishers out there. In yeah. April of 2022, uh, Miles attempted to re-enter Afghanistan. Um, he claimed in videos that his goal was to rescue a tour guide and his family who were threatened by the Taliban, but he wound up stuck in Pakistan, claiming that this guide had lied to him and claimed that the border was closed to British people. Um, he, he's I mean, like, to be he, fair, I, yeah. I have no issues with this. No, that would be fine. Yeah. And he get, he gets like, he starts like freaking out in the video. He's like near tears and stuff. He claims that he'd, he'd spent 15,000 pounds on the trip and now he was broke. So obviously he uses it. He has to beg for money from his followers, which I kind of wonder if that was just the whole point of the trip. He also pointed posted whiny status updates claiming his life had been ruined by the failed trip. Quote, this means I can't go on a date with a girl I really liked. It means I can't sponsor a joint adventure with my friend. I will go home to an empty room. I am at my end. Yeah. But I know, big baby. Yeah. Dis despite his failure, he did not give up on his dreams of stumbling through Afghanistan again for the sake of content. He put together another trip for the start of 2023. In late February, as he geared up to go, he made some tweets to his followers that give us more unfortunate context as to the sort of person he is. From February 27th. A flatmate saw my Bible and said, that book is a fairy tale, so I threw my empty mug at his head, broke on the wall behind him. This isn't the first instance, and after a while, you have to stop playing nice and defend your faith. <laughs> Yeah, this, this, so, this is the, great this guy. Is the tweet yeah. that I remember seeing. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was a great one. Uh, <laughs> now, people used to send me his shit so often. It's, he's that, infuriating. That. Yeah. There's a worse one. Uh, the most infuriating tweet I found from this guy came a bit further down, and it's, it's a picture of him, I think, in... It might be Dubai. I think it's Dubai. So he's, like, got his back to the skyline, um, and he's just kind of, like, looking off into the distance pensively. And it says, friends say I space out all the time. My mind is having visions of North Sentinel Island. Now, if you don't remember, Sentinel Island is the forbidden island in the Andamans, which is a part of India, where in 2018, an idiot Christian missionary broke quarantine and endangered the lives of an entire tribe so he could satisfy his narcissistic evangelical fetish. He was thankfully shot to death by them via arrow before he could get too close and hopefully did not spread any diseases to them. Um, I, I wish Miles success in reaching the <laughs> yeah. island and meeting a similar fate, but if he gets anywhere close to them, there's just such a high chance that he will spread deadly disease to the people there that I hope he, he the Indian government keeps him away, even though it would be very funny if he got shot to death by them. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. That, that would be quite a, quite a laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> truly living out the dreams of being a British lord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, continue a real time honored tradition getting fucking yeah. murked by the natives on an island. <laughs> yeah. So the good news is that Friends of the Pod, the Taliban, may have taken care of, you know, this guy for us. Shortly after making those posts, he re entered Afghanistan. In a video posted several days later, he bragged about entering, while he's in Afghanistan, he brags that he made a fake visa in order to get himself into the country. Oh. So he breaks <laughs> Taliban law entering the country in a fake video and then posts a video while he's in Kabul bragging about it. <laughs> so first off, genius brain. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah. 
uh, smarts there. So this the first video that he posts back is it's titled something like Shooting Guns with the Taliban. And it's all about him just like going to Jalalabad to see what kind of guns are available. He talks a lot about how all these U.S. guns and gear are available, but he doesn't actually really show any of it. Like most of the video, he's in like this fucking, um, I'll show you, he's in like this fucking gun bazaar and he's like, really awed by this giant AR style Turkish shotgun. Um, which, oh, we've seen some of those. <laughs> we have seen oh, some of those, no. James. They're terrible <laughs> weapons. They are definitely, like, obviously, the Taliban got a hold of a shitload of U.S. gear. Nobody's questioning that. Yeah. These yeah. shitty Turkish shotguns are not American yeah. weaponry. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's, that's probably why it's in the bazaar and not, like, in someone's, like, garage yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the Taliban yeah. have access to a lot of American gear. He is kind of just like looking at, I don't know, like a, a mix of like old Soviet weapons and like trash guns. So I'm going to show you a first clip from this video here. Jalalabad is uh, sometimes a little bit dangerous. So there's a lot of Daesh there. If you don't know who Daesh is, it's basically ISIS. <laughs> Now, ISIS, they don't outnumber the Taliban. However, the weapons market, and maybe in some areas, could be quite bad for me. So I'm going to have to be a little bit careful. But if you're seeing this footage, it ended up okay. I'm just going to take a moment to tell you guys about my sponsor, Tendies. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> this is not official medium, but... Jesus Christ. That is one of the most jarring ad trans. Like, if you're not watching this, he's like standing in the desert and like talking. There's that brief clip of like a picture of some ISIS guys, but then he's like back in the desert talking. And then suddenly a shot, like it cuts very harshly to him in his hotel room doing like a fucking ad for an investment banking app. Um, It's so fucking, or like a, a stock trading app. It's so funny. And then he, he has this bandana on. That's yeah, that's the. Uh, has he got the shahada written on it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sure does. Oh, for fuck's sake! Yeah, I, I, I was gonna say people should watch this, but but just to spare yourself, like, God. Yeah, he's 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 wearing his white headband. With yeah. I, I can't see it anymore, but it's, it's something written in Arabic on it, I guess, and uh, doing it as much for something called tendies. Yeah, something which is like, yeah, some sort of like stock trading app for, I'm going to guess, people to get their life savings scammed from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's my uh, apologies, tendies, if I'm getting you wrong, but you're you're sponsoring Lord Miles Rutledge. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, damn. It's okay. We've got enough sports betting uh, companies to that will we'll be okay. Yeah, we'll Ronald by. Reagan we'll always by. sees us right. <laughs> yeah, Ronald Reagan, go, gold coins or silver <laughs> yeah. coins will take care of us. Yeah. So again, one of the things that's very funny about this is the amount of time he spends flipping out over this dog shit AR style shotgun. For those of you who aren't gun people, the Turks make a number of different shotguns that kind of look like AR-15s. They're all very impressive looking to people who don't know anything about guns. They're terrible weapons. One of the reasons they're terrible is that shotgun shells do not work well in magazines. The reason most shotguns are tube fed because like shot shells are plastic and they have a weird shape to them. And if you stick them in a magazine like a normal bullet, they just tend to like jam and misfeed yeah. a lot. It's just a, not a lock. good way for it. To, yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah. It's the one gun, the one actual like produced in a factory gun that I'm aware of 
that the folks in Myanmar are like, nah, fuck it, we'll just 3D <laughs> we, print one dude. This sucks. We, we don't need these. There's like, we are desperate, but these are just dog. And he like he spends a lot of time like talking about how cheap guns are. You can get guns here cheaper than you can anywhere else because like this AR shotgun is 200 bucks. It's like, man, I can get an AR shotgun for 200 bucks in Portland, Oregon. They're terrible. <laughs> Nobody yeah. wants them. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, so he does eventually go out with what he claims is the Taliban. As far as I can tell, it's a guy who has an M16 that he probably paid like a hundred bucks to go shooting with, right? Yeah. Um, maybe the guy, like a lot of people in Afghanistan are technically the Taliban, but um, that doesn't mean like much, right? Like at this point, they're the government. Yeah. Like, you know, you get like your uncle, you know, gets you a fucking gig or something watching a road or whatever. I don't know. I don't know anything about this guy. He claims he's the Taliban. Um, so I'm going to play you a clip of him shooting this guy's M16. Yeah. Yeah. No hearing protection. Sweeping people. Oh, I like <laughs> just sweeps him again, pointing the barrel at him. Oh, <laughs> fuck me! Thank you, my friend. The Taliban guy is visibly nervous about him yeah. using the gun. <laughs> He's glad he got that back in one piece. Yeah, you're fighting that Yeah, okay. He's backing away. He's just like shooting into the air. Yeah. I love how like Ooh. visibly nervous the Taliban guy is. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. he, he sweeps his legs with the gun, like points the barrel at that guy's legs like three different times. Um, shoots up into the air. He's just an incompetent asshole with it. He, he's um, doing all of these like like eighties action movie poses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, like, firing it. It's it's oh, very God. stupid. Um, he has no hearing protection in, so he like hurts his ears. Like yeah, <laughs> like it's 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 just comprehensively stupid and sad. God. Um, so this video was dumb. Shortly after filming it, Miles met up with two other UK citizens who were in the country. One of whom was. He's described in most of the news articles I read as just a charity medic. And it's this is all a little unclear. It seems like this guy was in possession of a firearm without a proper permit. He claims that he has a permit, but it, that was lost or something, yeah. whatever. At any rate, Miles goes missing in early March. And after several days, the Taliban announces that they've taken him and these two other British guys and also two Polish guys uh, into custody. And it's a little unclear why, but it seems to be due to, like, them breaking some laws with guns. It also may have something to do with the fact that Miles broke the law entering the country. Um, he seems to be being treated reasonably well at present. It's unclear what's going to happen to him. I hope. Uh, I mean, honestly, like, of all the people who deserve to be in a Taliban prison, Miles Rutledge <laughs> is uh, is the one. <laughs> like, uh, that's amazing. <laughs> Like, yeah, keep yeah. that. Go ahead and keep that guy, Taliban. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, very, 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 solid. Uh, very excited for whoever's in the prime minister's chair next week to, like, yeah, maybe get around to start negotiating with the Taliban over this dipshit. I hope they don't. The British, so the British, funny. The British Foreign <laughs> Office just don't give a fuck anymore. Like, I've had to contact them with when colleagues have been detained, etc. And, yeah. like, they'll literally be like, no, computer says no, and, and just, like, Tight yeah. fuck off. Like, so hopefully they do the same for him. 
Yeah, it doesn't. I haven't seen anything like the late, most recent news stories about him were like more than a week ago. It looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm not seeing anything recently, so it it doesn't look like. I'm guessing we would have there'd be some coverage if he'd been freed. Um, yeah. The Daily Mail talked to his mom, who uh, uh, apparently <laughs> was like, "Yeah, he was he was there to try to find himself." Um, yeah, uh, it's very funny. Uh, he says he claims at one point like. Yo guy's been taken by the by Afghan intelligence for taking like $1000 out of Western Union sus amount no internet no idea when this will end everything is good but please excuse my lack of communication um that was like March 8th something like that um and he hasn't really been back on in a while like he's kind of been dark for for quite a spell so I don't know, maybe something terrible has happened to him or will happen to him at which point <laughs> or in which case like that would be kind of funny. Um, fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I am officially. Yeah. I mean, he fucked around and found out. <laughs> yeah. Like, you keep, again, man, you want to, like, you, yeah, you, you keep fucking around. You, like, go to a place with, like, a famously, uh, like, dangerous uh, authoritarian government who are actively hurting people and are like, I'm going to brag about breaking the law for a YouTube video. But yeah, man. Maybe they'll get pissed. It's like the same shit with, like, Obviously, the Romanian government is not the Taliban, but like it's the same kind of shit with like Andrew Tate, where you're like, I'm going to go to this other country and brag about the fact that they're not stopping me from breaking their laws. Well, that's a pretty good way to get them to to fucking <laughs> cause yeah. problems for you. Like, anyway. My, 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 my favorite Miles post, if, if I'm remembering this right, I'm pretty sure like two weeks before he like got arrested he he po- he posted a tweet about how like he's safer and he's safer in Afghanistan than he is in uh, than he would be in San Francisco yeah, in in, yeah. Bro- in Brooklyn yeah, yeah. Um, oh Brooklyn. yeah but I forgot about he, this he tried he spent, to be homeless spent, for a day he spent f- no two days he spent forty eight hours quote unquote homeless in Brooklyn yeah um yeah. for again for content um and yeah it is it is funny that like he is in a lot of trouble now um yeah. hopefully. You he know, tried hopefully. to go to um, uh, Mission Texas as well. I don't know if he, he ever went, but he was going to do oh, something. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, he was going to do something fucking horrific with people crossing the Rio Grande. Oh, uh, no. God. Oh, the, yeah. you see, the, look. It's where we I get the base butterfly I, lady with her M4. You're, you're not going to hear this often from me, but critical support to the Taliban. Like, they're, <laughs> they're, they're really fighting the good fight for yeah. all of us by keeping yeah. this guy behind bars. Yeah. I was, it initially seemed like he had, uh, he had fallen into the hands of like uh, the Islamic State Khorasan yeah. province there. And yeah. uh, I was going to no. have to. Yeah. You rarely yeah, have to hand it to Islamic State, but yeah. we, might, we may have had that one occasion. Yeah. I don't give ISIS a lot of credit, but that, that it is like, um, you know what? I'll just I'm going to go ahead and say this on behalf of the rest of the world. Taliban, if you keep him locked up, you know, we will erase one of those big Buddha statues from like the list of Taliban crimes. We'll all agree to forget one of the Buddhas. Like, yeah, hold on. I, no, think, no, no, I feel no, like I'm, that's I'm, fair. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not signing on to this. I'm still, well, I'm still mad about the Buddhists. <laughs> I just one of them. Come on. <laughs> no, we, we need all the Buddhists. Uh, anyway, uh, fuck this guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's fucking sad. I hope they're feeding um, him tofu. Yeah, I hope they're feeding him all of the soy in Afghanistan. Yeah. Like, yeah. fucking park a soy truck up to that guy's cell. Yeah. Um. Anyway, 
that's a story. Like, again, there's these guys are like, especially in the social media. I mean, they've always been a part of war and of conflict. Um, you know, there's a degree to which like this is a, a not a new story. Like, this is actually kind of a one of the older stories in in human history. Is like dudes kind of stumbling into war zones in order to write about it or otherwise like make it about them. Um, so, you know, uh, fuck these people, uh, and fuck Miles Rutledge in specific. Um, I hope we, I, I hope he winds up like those Venezuelan mercs or not there. I mean, they weren't Venezuelan, but they were yeah. in Venezuela who are caught on video pissing themselves <laughs> and then lying in the piss. Um, uh, that's, that's my dream for Miles Rutledge. Um, spending some time lying in piss before he's sent back to the UK. Um, yeah, that's what I got. Yeah. Nice. Hopefully they revoke his fucking citizenship like, uh, that they did to the British people. <laughs> <laughs> he did make a that bunch of posts based. about how cool the Taliban were. So I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can dream. Look, look, man, you said you wanted to live there. Uh, here you go. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I think he's a dick and I think this is funny. That's my official stance. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Happy Earth Day, and by Happy Earth Day, I mean the Earth is dying and people are killing it. Uh, yeah, welcome, welcome to It Could Happen Here, the Earth Day episode. Now, 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 quick question, Mia. What is Earth? So the Earth is one of many, many, many planets in the universe. 
Uh, it, it it was it was it's congealed rock. There's some like melty shit in the middle of it. But on the outside, there's a part of it that's nice to live on, and it, it'd be nice to uh, continue to have it be that. Ah, okay. That's this is different than what I had been raised to believe. But uh, but but I'll 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 humor you here. Please continue. Yes, and so okay, we're we're going to be talking today about uh, one 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 of the many attempts to uh, destroy the Earth, and also Garrison is here too. Hello. Yes, hi. I'm 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 here also for the Earth. For the Earth, yeah, yeah. And this is a special episode featuring a bombing. So it, oh, it, good. it is. Ah, oh, I love a good bombing. Yeah, this is very exciting. Actually, t- technically speaking, it's two bombs. So it, 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 it is near midnight on July 10th, 1985. The crew of the Greenpeace boat Rainbow Warrior, which is docked in the harbor of Auckland, which is New Zealand's largest city, a thing that I learned while researching this episode. Wait, really? That's New Zealand's largest city? Yeah. Yeah, there's not, there's not a lot in New Zealand other than Hobbits and uh, that one show about vampires. A lot of cheese, too. They make, they make, they make, a, lot of, like, make a lot of milk. So they, they, yeah, the, the Greenpeace boat is is it's docked in this harbor. Most of the crew is asleep, or some of them are playing cards, and they are they are relaxing after having celebrated the birthday of one of their crews. Suddenly, a massive shock rips through the boat. Water starts flooding into the ship. The lights go out, and the, the crew thinks they've been hit by a tugboat by accident. Um, that lasts a couple of minutes until a second explosion hits the boat. Mr. President, a second explosion has hit the boat. Nine eleven joke, yes, yeah, very ex- ex- excellent, good work. So the crew, the like, like the people fleeing nine eleven, the crew flees the boat, but they realize that their photographer, a guy named Fernando Pereira, is missing. And Pereira, like, hasn't quite realized that the boat is like under attack, and so he runs back to his cabin to grab his camera. And then the second explosion hits, and the boat sinks so fast that he never has a chance to get back up. Um, and he drowns to death and the crew very quickly realizes that this is not an accident. Um, and rescue divers discover there are a massive, there's like massive holes in the ship from where it had been blown up from the outside. And they eventually determined that this boat, which is again, a Greenpeace boat that is doing nonviolent civil disobedience has been sunk by limpet mines. Oh boy. Oh, I love a good limpet mine. I'm so happy that we're we're getting limpet mines in this episode. Yeah, yeah, we're getting we're getting limpet mines. We're getting there'll be some special forces boats later, or I say boats, it's one boat. But yeah, we're going we're 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 going through all of the sort of naval combat greats mm-hmm. here. Excellent. But this raises the question: Who would commit such an act of terrorism on the? I can't actually say on the soil of New Zealand because it's technically in the water of New Zealand. In the but, waters of New Zealand, yeah. Yeah, yeah, off the coast of New Zealand, sure. Yeah, we get it. Yeah, but, okay, so to, to answer this question, we need to talk about the anti-nuclear movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- th- there's been a kind of rewriting of history about what the anti-nuclear movement was actually about. Um, To basically, like, sort of purely focus on the anti-nuclear movement as something that's just about nuclear power, but that was never true. The movement was always way more larger than that, and a huge part of it was about opposing nuclear weapons, both in terms of, like, opposing nuclear tests and in terms of fighting for nuclear disarmament on the fairly simple principle that uh, having weapons that can kill everyone on earth around is a bad idea. Well, it's I mean, a, it's a bad idea if you don't want to destroy the entire earth, but yeah, that's true. But yeah. If you want to destroy the earth, it's a, a pretty good idea. Actually. Unfortunately, I'm on a living kick right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm now oh, okay. anti destroying right. everything <laughs> on earth. Yeah, I, it's it's good that you can admit your bias up front, though. That's yeah, important. yeah. This, this is a very important thing in journalism. Yeah. 
So, you know, okay. So when we talk a bit about nuclear testing, because it doesn't, it doesn't happen anymore. Um, nuclear testing. Okay. So we used to just like detonate nuclear bombs, like in the you're air. Goddamn right. You're goddamn right. We did. Yeah. And it turns out this, this kills enormous numbers of people. But the problem is that it kills them very slowly with increased cancer rates, which is very difficult to sort of track or like prove direct causality. And, you know, this is aided by the fact that when countries do nuclear testing, they are almost always killing people. Well, they're almost always dropping this the, the nukes on indigenous land, which means that they're killing people who the government and most of the country just like does not care about. And, you know, you, you, you can literally map colonialism and sort of the value that a, that a given like a given state places on people's lives by, you know, where they tested nuclear weapons. So, for example, mm-hmm. the U.S. tested nuclear bombs in places like the Bikini Atoll, the Marshall Islands, a former tribal land in Nevada and New Mexico, and in Hatesburg, Mississippi. <laughs> okay, so... Jesus Christ. All those are bad except... Except Mississippi. That no, was fine. no, that was also bad because uh, uh-huh. guess get uh, get guess get guess what race the population of Hatesville, Mississippi was. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. all right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they got paid ten dollars to I'm, I'm get relocated, a, quote unquote. Yeah, this is this is this is not a white it's not a white no, city that they are blowing up with a nuclear bomb. Um, it's not like it's not like a gated community for white men in their fifties or something. No. no. No, um, so, no. The only good nuclear testing we did was back in the day when they used to set off nukes right outside of Vegas, and and so all of the Vegas people would watch <laughs> the nukes go off and then get irradiated. That was that was kind of funny. Yeah, they um, also they, they also irradiated Air, the Area Fifty One people one time, and that was also extremely funny. They, they sure did. Um, and there was that like guy. I think it was uranium. There was like one of the dudes who was on the Manhattan Project. There was this like dude who. Uh, uh, there was like an accident and he just sucked down a bunch of nuclear fuel um, and they had to like he could never work in a lab again after that. And he every for like decades afterwards, his breath tested positive for like radioactivity. Jesus but he lived Christ. to be like 80 something like wow, it didn't for him. doesn't seem to have hurt him. Um, he said it tasted kind of like like sour candy. Uh, <laughs> well, OK, so he he's tasted the forbidden nuclear water. Uh, yeah, no one else has to now. We know what it tastes like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Donald Donald Mastic was he was sprayed in the face with liquid plutonium chloride <laughs> and swallowed Christ. some. Um, but apparently that's fine. <laughs> so there you go, everybody. Drink some plutonium. You'll live a long life. <laughs> so the U.S., I guess I guess also tests it on their nuclear scientists. But yeah, so that those are those were the U.S. tested. The USSR tests their nukes in Kazakhstan. Which there's an amazing story about Beria going where there's nobody, nobody lives in this part. Nobody lives in Kazakhstan, so we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. It's like, OK, Beria, uh, people, in fact, you live there. Um, China tests its nukes at a site called Lop Nor, which is in Xinjiang, because, of course, it is. And the French do their tests in the Sahara and Algeria until the Algerian Revolution forces them out, which uh, good for them. Uh, death of the betrayers, the Algerian workers councils, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this means that the French now no longer being able to bomb like their the colonial French. possessions in Algeria. Yeah, they 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 start testing their nuclear weapons on particularly the. Moruro, I, I don't know how to pronounce this. I'm really the, sorry. The, wait, wait, what is the wh- atoll in the in the, the south, the South Pacific? Oh. Yeah, that I mean that sounds close enough. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so they they start these tests like in secret. 
So there are there are people on islands nearby who don't know that there's nukes going off. Like they, they don't even have bomb shelters, right? It's real and loud these days. <laughs> Anybody notice how loud it's gotten here? <laughs> yeah, it's like you know you you can see the fucking mushroom cloud, right? Yeah. But like these people, you know the the, the fr- French military scientists are like, oh, it's fine. They're not going to be in the fallout. Uh, they're mm. unbelievably in the fallout yeah. radius. If anyone ever tells you you're not in a fallout radius, that's your first sign that you are, in fact, in a fallout radius. Yeah, it's never it's never a great it's never a great sign. I I don't that's happening. (laughs) I don't think anyone has ever assured a group of people that they're not going to be exposed to radiation and been telling the truth. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If if they had merely gone to these people and said you're not going to be exposed to radiation, it would have been better because then, then at least it would have had a chance. They just didn't tell these people at all. They were testing a nuke. Sure. They just blew it up. Great. And so they they detonate like they detonate nukes all over Polynesia. Um, in in uh, uh, actually a few years ago, there there was a there was a thing called the Morua Files, which was a, b- a bunch of investigative journalists got together. They got a bunch of classified French military documents. They they did they 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 got some scientists together and they they did a whole thing about the you know the sort of influence that like the the effects of this nuclear testing has and. I'm just going to read from that quote, according to our calculations, based on a scientific reassessment of the doses received, approximately 110,000 people were infected, almost the entire Polynesian population at the time. Good God. So they irradiated like the entire population of Polynesia. Um, this is this is great. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, know, that's not ideal. That's not ideal. Yeah. I'll, give, I'll give them that. And OK, so I obviously I, uh, nuclear testing has negative effects on humans. Uh, I feel like I don't need to explain how uh, nuclear testing has uh, dropping a nuclear bomb on a place has a negative effect on the environment. Uh, oh, that oh, seems. Are you sure? Are you sure? No. <laughs> <laughs> that seems pretty I, obvious. I think <laughs> we're all more or less caught up on nuking things being bad for them. Yeah. Except, well, ex- except for underwater aquatic lizards, uh, which seem to do really well when exposed to nuclear tests. Yeah. They they yeah. get, look they can they 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 have atomic breath now they've mm-hmm. got absolutely yeah big big uh, big arm. they get to star in a movie with a an, a surprising number of members of the cast of Simpsons um <laughs> yeah it's it's all it's all upsides oh and that uh Ferris Bueller I think was in it so that's hmm. pretty good yeah did these people get to star in a movie with Ferris Bueller uh no they died of. <laughs> radiation poisoning oh, well, or genetic yeah, defects yeah that's, that's unfortunate uh, that's unfortunate yeah and, and so these tests and some other tests that the u.s are doing in the marshall islands are the origin of greenpeace so the, there there have been environmental groups like the sierra club have been involved in anti-nuclear activism because again it, it bad bad for the environment dropping nukes but okay so the activism that the sierra club people are doing is based on bearing witness and the Greenpeace people rightly are like, fuckberry witness, they are dropping nuclear bombs. We are going to try to stop these bastards. The only and way you can beat a bad guy with a nuclear bomb is a good guy with a nuclear bomb. That's why we should <laughs> I'm introducing a new initiative to arm all Greenpeace members. Okay. The personal personal tactical nuke. Not yeah, a the joke. Da- the Davy Crockett. Is- this is this is I, I am not kidding. France's rationale for why they have nukes, which is that <laughs> the, the thing is literally called like this, like the the the, the weak per- deterring the strong or something. And it's like, ma'am, you are France. 
Like, come on. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. France is acting for the protection of uh, the, the weak against the strong. It's like, oh my. I mean, look, uh, I would, if I had the option, I would keep a nuke in my basement, you know, just in case. Yeah, someone someone comes to my house, you know, we, we've got I've got the option then. Right. Like what? If, what if? Because like right now, OK, say Pakistan decides to try to rob my house. I don't have a counter to their nuclear arsenal. But if I keep, you know, and I'm not even talking to like six to ten megatons in my basement. That's enough, I think, to discourage aggression, right? Or if well, like my Robert, neighbor I mean, decides there's, there's, to there's... call the city on me, you know, I've okay, got an option. That... There's a problem with this plan, which is how are you getting the nuke from your apartment to Pakistan? Well, I mean, like, look, it's if they come to my house, right? That way I can I can nuke all of my stuff so they won't want it. And that way they won't rob me in the first place, right? This this, this makes about as much sense as actual nuclear as actual nuclear doctrine. So yeah, I, I mean, it. it's it's worked for decades, Mia. Like, I don't know what your problem is here. <laughs> If it if it's worked for for all of these great powers, you know, it can work for me or I could do what the British do and send, you know, some of my some of my people out. I could send James or, or Garrison out underwater with a nuclear weapon and just have them always waiting in the <laughs> sea to nuke my adversaries if somebody takes me out, uh, much like the British nuclear fleet. See, we, we, we as a human race are really good at coming up with good ideas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have our ideas. Our ideas are amazing. They rock. We never have any bad ones. It is funny that there's just like some guys who are expected to like follow a dead man's orders at the end of the world uh, for for unclear reasons. Like there's just a letter and it's like if all of your loved ones die, open this letter and do whatever it says. <laughs> Nukes really are really funny systems. when you think about them. Yeah. Oh, so, okay, so in, in, in the late 60s and early 70s, there's people who are like, this is a terrible idea. We should not, in fact, drop nuclear bombs. And these groups in the late 60s become Greenpeace in 1970, uh, 1972. Okay. So, Great for them. Good for them. Yeah, all right. So we, we, we've, we've talked about the, like, the French having to move their nuclear program uh, into, into the Pacific after being ran out of Algeria. Um. Greenpeace starts doing direct actions against French nuclear testing. Mm -hmm. And so, so in, in, in 1972, Dave McTaggart, who's one of the founders of Greenpeace, sails his boat into a French nuclear testing area. Now, okay, I, 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 I have my issues sort of in principle with like nonviolence as your like pure organizing political principle. But if, if you are willing to sail your boat under a nuclear bomb to stop it from going off, that is that is pretty based yeah, man, and I have trouble. I have trouble like coming up with any uh, any any critiques of that. No, this rips. And like <laughs> yeah. and the other thing is like, you know, th this isn't this isn't a stunt, right? Like they are they are actually prepared to get nuked. Yeah, no, that's that seems like a, a pretty uh, yeah. you know, commitment. Yeah, it, I'll give it, them that. It, it's it's sick. Uh, and so they, they refuse to leave. And the French, the French Navy eventually gets so pissed off that a French Navy ship rams their boat like a fucking trireme. In order to get them Hell out, yeah. Based. so they're they're forced out because uh, they're rammed by a trireme. Uh, so happens to the best of us. We've all yeah, been there. So sometimes, sometimes you just get you just get rammed. I don't know. It, it happens. Mm -hmm. So true. <laughs> so they they Greenpeace tries to go to the International Court of Justice to get a ruling to force France to stop the testing, and the French government 
uh, stakes out what I, 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 I claim is like the primary status political principle, which is that what is justice to a man holding a gun? And they just absolutely ignore the, the International Court of Justice. So they, in, in 1974, they're trying to do another set of nuclear tests. And this time, you know, so Greenpeace is like, OK, well, we're going to we're going to send like a flotilla of boats out this time. Did you just say a flotilla? Yeah. Yeah. Is that a word? Yeah. 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 That's a group of boats, Garrison. Yeah. I that's like a that's like a murder of crows thing. A fl- no, yeah. No, yeah. A, yeah. But like this, yeah, this, is, yes. this is a very common name for a bunch of boats. I've never I've never heard that before. Now yeah, you a, fl- have. a flotilla. Yeah. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard had a flotilla of boats <laughs> that he made teenagers pilot and jump off of when he was angry at them. You know, I, uh-huh. I, I was thinking about this. I think this is actually the first flotilla of boats that we've had on any of our shows that is good. That, that's not that's not commanded by L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> yeah. Or like the Moody's. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a whole it's a whole sort of line of bad. But this 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 is a good flotilla. But the Navy this time is like, OK, we're not going to mess around with these people like and, you know, let them get inside the testing zone. Uh, they So they just board McTabbert's ship and just beat the shit out of him and his crew. And so the, 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 the French Navy claims that like, oh, the Greenpeace people just like turned around on their own and uh, uh, McTaggart. You know, McTaggart's like very badly, visibly hurt. So he like shows up to the press and the, the, the French Navy goes, oh, I mean, he's like McTaggart is like he is he he is like blind in one eye for several months. Like he is very, very badly beaten. And uh, the French Navy claims that it was actually the result of a fall, which mm-hmm. I, I, I will allow you to draw your own conclusions. He walked into a door. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you draw your own conclusions about parallels between the state and domestic abusers. But yeah. Yeah, unfortunately for uh, the French Navy, the Greenpeace crew have managed to, like, get the beatings on camera, and they're able to smuggle, like, the film canister off the boat and get it to the newspapers. And so the newspapers the next day just have a bunch of, like, pictures showing the French Navy just beating the shit out of these, like, random Greenpeace people. Mm-hmm. And this eventually actually works, right? Uh, there's, there's, there's sort of, there's, I mean, there's, there's a sort of political pressure campaign that Greenpeace is waging. There are these, there are these campaigns in the French courts to get the government to stop. And eventually, in 1974, the French government agrees to stop conducting atmospheric tests and nuclear weapons. Now, Robert, do you know who else stopped conducting uh, atmospheric testing after years of public pressure campaigns? The U.S. and the USSR. Uh, yes, but also. The products and services. That support oh, that this support podcast. this podcast. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, most most of them, most of them. Ah, we're back, uh, and you know that I, I'm I'm hearing now that we uh, we did have an ad from Blue Apron in there, who does continue like low Earth orbit uh, atmospheric nuclear weapons testing, but you know it's the only way to get your food boxes to you in a timely manner. Um, they they have to use the Orion Drive, which is uh, a, a special spacecraft engine that relies on popping nuclear weapons out of the back of a spaceship and using them to accelerate it to near light speed. Um, it's actually that's a you can look that up. It's a pretty cool idea. I think we should it, do it. it. It is very funny to me that it's mm-hmm. like, OK, we, we have this incredibly convoluted drive that's powered by nuclear weapons and it. It gets you to around the speed of light, maybe. <laughs> it's it's not even convoluted. It's literally just the spaceship poops out a nuke and it makes it go faster. <laughs> yeah, I just, oh. we, we it's, can't it's, even, like, it's a fun idea. I'm gonna be honest with you. I think it's a fun idea. It is, but it, like it, it can't even get you 
to, like, the next solar system very fast. Well, nothing probably ever can, which yeah. is why we're all doomed to die alone in the dark. Yeah, very sad. Mm-hmm. Other thing that's sad. Okay, so the French government agrees to stop doing, like, tests in the atmosphere, right? However, mm-hmm. this is just atmospheric tests. I never agreed to stop doing, like, non-atmospheric tests. So in, in 1985, the French government is gearing up to do another round of nuclear testing, and Greenpeace is once again bringing a flotilla to try to stop them. Now, Gre- Greenpeace, are already in 1985, they've been involved in another anti-nuclear, well, okay, really it's, the, it's, it's all the same anti-nuclear campaign, but... So the, the other people who are dropping nukes in the, in the Pacific are the U.S. And when they, they nuked the Marshall Islands, the people of this uh, island called Rongelap uh, began suffering from radiation exposure, even though they were also, once again, told by the American government that they were fine. And so the, the U.S. is going to drop another nuke. And they refuse to evacuate these people. And so Greenpeace, like brings their boats like brings the rainbow warrior and uh, these people ask like greenpeace for help so greenpeace like evacuates them all to another island and like brings like construction materials and supplies so they can like set up on a new island and it's this really i don't know it's it's a really sort of grim look into what you know like what this nuclear testing actually means which is that a bunch of people who've been living in a place for hundreds of years are forced to flee for their lives like you know the state won't the state won't even like ethnically cleanse them right like they they are they are, they are forcibly relocated from their homes but the state won't even do it because the state's like no it's fine we're just, you're just gonna die of radiation poisoning and so they have to get someone else to like move them and it's i don't know it's it's really bleak uh these people survive which is good but the u.s doing nuclear testing in the marshall islands which i i'm betting at least 40% of you don't know of the U.S. control. <laughs> um, yeah, it it sucks. So, okay, so they, 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 they get done with this evacuation. They're back in Auckland, and then their flagship, the Rainbow Warrior, gets bombed. And Greenpeace talks later about how they actually got really lucky because, you know, remember when I said earlier there were people who were still awake, like, playing cards? If those people had been in their cabins, a bunch of them basically would have drowned immediately because the cabins got flooded instantly by the first bomb. So they got very lucky. Only one person died. I, I to this day, I do not understand why the people who did this thought they could do this without killing anyone. Like I, it's baffling to me. I, I, I don't know. I, well, at least they claim they weren't trying to kill anyone. Uh, so New Zealand police start investigating, you know, hey, there's been a, a like a terrorist attack on a boat in our harbor. Sure. And, yeah. That that seems like a thing you'd look into. Yeah. yeah and, I, and, I get that. They, they get very, very lucky. And they get lucky because there are two people in this boating club who are like watching the harbor, trying to see if it, like trying to catch someone who's been stealing diving equipment. And in the middle of the night, they see a man in a black wetsuit carrying a Zodiac inflatable speedboat ashore and get into a Hell van. Yeah. Now, Hell okay, yeah. so, so it's, it's unclear to me which bottle of Zodiac this is, but for people not familiar with boats, uh, Zodiac makes something called the Milpro, which is a, a, like, it's an inflatable speedboat that is used by, like, most of the world's special forces units. And so these two guys are like, this is really sketchy. <laughs> and so they, and, and, and so they, they, they're, you know, they, they put two and two together when they realize that a boat's been blown up. And they're like, oh, my God, it was probably these guys. So they go to the police and 
they, they're able to get the license plate of the van. And so the staff at this like van depot have to like sit there and like stall the two people in the van and keep them from leaving long enough for the cops to show up, which is something I really, really desperately want a video of. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds really funny. I do love the idea of like the average people who work at like a car rental company <laughs> being asked like, hey, could you do like a little bit of counterterrorism for us today? <laughs> just like a skosh of it in between denying people rentals because they don't have a credit card. Um, amazing. And OK, so the, the cops show up and they arrest these, this couple who are claiming to be newlyweds. But the, 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 the New Zealand government quickly discovers that both these people have forged passports from Sweden. Hell yeah. They're, they're, great, yeah, they're on great. fake Swiss passports. And so they discover their real names. And uh, by God, is that the Marseillaise? That is a man with a baguette. It is the French CIA. They have planted this bomb. What? And... What their, is the French CIA called? Uh, hold on. Because we can't just say the French CIA. And yeah, so it's, the, ass, it's like, the Directorate General for External Security, or okay, DGSE. No, that, that is definitely Oh, that's fake. a, a much is, worse, much no, worse. Oh, definitely. We're going we're gonna to go back to calling it the French yeah, CIA. I'm going to read it Secret police, I think we can all agree, secret police need to have three-letter acronyms. CIA, GRU, FBI, like it just doesn't work with four. Yeah, or you need to have one kind of sinister sounding name, like the Mukabarat, but like the DGSE. Oh my <laughs> yeah, god. Awful. I'm yeah. sorry, that sounds like a bank. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the it's the direction general de la security. No, no, that's all. No, that's trash. Trash. France, you have been you have been suppressing people for so long, and you don't have a better secret police name than that. That's shameful. Yeah. Uh, by the way, their address. Uh, MI six. That's a great fucking name yeah. for MI6, your secret good police. Name. Good name. Incredible. Or MI five. Whatever the real one is. Yeah. Uh, anyways, if, if if you if you ever want to go like take a visit to these people, their their headquarters is on 141 Boulevard Mortier, Paris, France. It's at yeah. uh, 44, uh, 48 dot uh, 8744 North 2.4067 yeah. East Latitude. Great. I don't need to go back to France. Yeah, go fuck with the DGSE. <laughs> I'm not that so, big a wine guy. It's fine. <laughs> so they, 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 they catch these agents whose names are, I shit you not, Gene Kamas and Gene Luke Kister. No. Yeah, that's, no. that makes sense. No. So the, 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 the police catch these two. There's like 10 other. Well, there's like eight other people involved. Uh, two of them get, I think like maybe two, one or two of them get caught in. Australia, but the Australian police aren't able to hold them long enough for the forensic evidence to come in, so they have to release them and they flee. And there's this whole thing where, like, they flee at a yacht and then they get on a submarine and the submarine shoots the yacht to sink it. It's it's, it's a whole thing. And, and I, I I I actually okay, it probably is worth mentioning here that the, the as 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 silly as the French CIA's name sound name sounds like they have one of the most extensive networks of surveillance and sabotage of any intelligence agency in the world it never gets talked about but they have they have people everywhere they are lethal they absolutely suck but yeah so they they get caught and the the the, the french order an investigation <laughs> And their first investigation concludes that, like, well, we asked, okay, so these people are our spies, right? But we just asked them to spy on Greenpeace. We didn't ask them to do a bombing. 
And everyone's like, okay, yeah, sure, French government. Uh, so the, the, the French We've media We've all does, been there, yeah. Yeah, it's like, well, no. Okay, so you, 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 you may have caught two of our spies dragging a Zodiac boat while with a guy, in a, a guy in a wetsuit dragging a Zodiac boat into a van. But that doesn't mean he did the bombing. And the, the French media does their own investigation and, like, quickly concludes that, like, not, not only did the French order the bombing, the bombing was personally signed off on by French Defense Minister Charles Herdou. And also, quite possibly, uh, French pre- uh, French President Francois Mitterrand. And well, okay, at is... least Mitterrand's got a good name for an evil president. Yeah, well, this is interesting, right? Because if you know your French history, for those of you who know your French history, you will note that Mitterrand is a man to the French left. He's 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 the prime minister. Uh, he's the president from the from France's Socialist Party, right? He has okay, like okay. He has a program of amnesty for Italian communist terrorists where, like, if you're able to make it to France, they won't extradite you. That's pretty cool. The communists would never have a nuclear bomb. <laughs> so, so very famously, Antonio Negri, who's the guy who writes a bunch of books that are very famous in the early 2000s, uh, he, he's, he's like he's one of the, the founders of the autonomists. Uh, he flees to uh, he uses this to flee to France after the Italian government accused him of being the mastermind of the Red Brigades who had just kidnapped and killed former Prime Minister Aldo Moro. So Negri gets himself parliamentary immunity by getting elected as an MP and then flees to France, which is just very funny. And then Mitterrand refuses to extradite him. So, okay, so on the one hand, you would think that Mitterrand is like, I don't know, kind of cool. I I don't. I I don't think so. I don't. (laughs) Yeah, so so Mitterrand, okay, so in in terms of sort of being sympathetic, Mitterrand is like a, a kind of different kind of neoliberal than the kind that we that we sort of know. So I, I my I, I would classify in terms of sort of neoliberal like neoliberal politicians, right? Like neoliberal heads of countries. I think there's sort of like three kinds of them. There are sort of the right wing hardliners, people like Thatcher, like Pinochet and Reagan. Although Reagan's weirdly Reagan is slightly less hardline than like Thatcher is, but yeah. So okay, so there's there's those people. There's the sort of like third way neoliberals like Clinton and Tony Blair who are like I guess like liberals in the American sense, but are still sort of like real hardliners on economics. And then there's a group of people I would call like the, the quote unquote socialist neoliberals like Mitterrand and Italy's longtime socialist party, prime minister, uh, Bettino Croxy. Like, I, I don't know if I can actually call him the most corrupt man in Italian politics, but like, he's like at least in the top five, but he, he's prime minister for like 20 years. And he, he's also like this. So th- these are, these are people who are nominally socialist and we'll talk about like, doing socialism but then are also like implementing neoliberalism and you know the, i I, th- I think the closest thing to this in the u.s is like if, if carter had beaten reagan we still would have gotten neoliberalism but it would have been sort of like softer than it was under reagan so you know you you have your sort of kinder gentler form of neoliberalism and do you know who else advocates for a kinder and gentler form of neoliberalism Oh, not Blue Apron. No, they no. they support going <laughs> going right back to the old days. We're talking like East India Trading Company. In fact, as we speak, Blue Apron's flotilla is on the coast of India right now, ready ready to try their hand at making another Raj in Calcutta. We wish you could all see Garrison's face. It's amazing. <laughs> it's it's fine. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Ah, we're back. So, all right, the, the, the consequence of this is that, you know, despite the fact that Mitterrand is, like, nominally a socialist, he is completely committed to nuclear testing as part of his, like, nuclear deterrence program. 
Um, funny, f- funny how that, funny how that always happens, huh? Yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. Now, supporting colonialism is not out of character for Mitterrand, who as part of a previous coalition government in the 50s had presided over the guillotining of Algerian rebels. But uh, his his reaction to his government and possibly also him personally bombing the Rainbow Warrior is not good. Yeah, so no. well, that's nice to hear, at least. <laughs> not a not a great look, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, so so because French people are extremely normal, the reaction in the French public about their government carrying out a terrorist attack is that there's a giant nationalist upswell and people get really angry because uh, they're, they're demanding that the two French intelligence agents, who again are serving 10-year manslaughter sentences in New Zealand for bombing a ship involved in nonviolent civil disobedience in the harbor of a country that France is not at war with, People are mad that they are like being held in prison, yeah, and yeah, they're no, demanding I mean, they be released. That that makes sense from like the fr- yeah the French it, nationalist side. It's that the fr- it's the French far right. They're pretty yeah. Well, pretty it's not bad. even the French far right. Like like again, like, they, like lots like lots of just like non far right people in France get involved in this. Yeah. And they had this whole thing about the, the way they talk about it is amazing that they, they talk about it in terms of liberating them. It's like they just murdered a guy with a bomb, like the multiple. But they used two mines to blow this ship up. It's just like and, and so the Midian's government's response is they start putting sanctions on New Zealand's exports. That's funny. Awesome. That's funny. And, and this is this is a huge deal for New Zealand because. Uh, they they have a you know New Zealand's economy is like in large part an agricultural based export economy and they export just an enormous amount of cheese to France. And yeah, butter. I did not I I did not know that. Yeah, well, so I I New Zealand is like one of the world's leading dairy producers. Yeah, I I thought they mostly just made those like elfin dwarf and wizard movies, but oh huh. no, yeah, I mean they they do make a lot of money producing Limbus cakes, uh, which which can keep you going for an entire week, you know. Wait, um, I'm I'm realizing I'm realizing now I'm I'm not Gary. Do you know the story of how uh, of of how New Zealand got, uh, was was like dragged into supporting the Iraq War and sending troops to Iraq? No. Okay. Okay. I need to tell the story because I'm realizing there's some of our listeners who might not have heard this the last time I told the story. Okay. So in, in, in the WikiLeaks papers, it comes out that New Zealand, New Zealand sent troops to Iraq because the, so New Zealand had had a, a milk for oil program mm-hmm. uh-huh. where they would trade milk to Iraq for oil. For and the U S yeah. threatened that after the, after they invaded Iraq, they were going to cut off the milk for oil deal. And this was this was like Fonterra. They're like the giant uh, uh, like milk cooperative in in New Zealand was so powerful. And the New Zealand government was like, fine, don't 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 cut off our dairy, uh, our, our milk for oil program. We will go to war. So, yeah, uh, New, Ze- New Zealand, New Zealand did not go to war mm-hmm. for oil. New Zealand went to war for the milk market. And and that's why we called it a coalition of the willing. Yep. <laughs> Oh, New Zealand is a truly a cursed place. And, and you know, and the, the in, in, I, mean, in I, I, I don't think New Zealand's the cursed one in that. No, instance. I mean, it's true. But they also like the, this is the this is the second time that New Zealand is going to capitulate to like the to, to the demands of a violent imperialist in order to save their cheese market. I mean, that's that's like a fair criticism of New Zealand. But as an American, oh, uh, I, I do feel like I don't really have much room to like talk shit on this that's particular true. issue. <laughs> it is it is it is our fault that this yeah. is all happening. 
Yeah, I, I just am not going to blame New Zealand <laughs> for this okay, one. Okay, that, that's fair. That's fair. I, 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 I will kind of blame them for this one. Although this is also France's fault. So yeah. what, what what they're able to do is they're able to well okay partially also so like eight of the other people who are involved in this bombing like are just got out free and so New Zealand is like hey will you guys like send us these people so we can try them and France is like no absolutely not in fact we will impose sanctions on you and what they're able to do is they're able to force New Zealand to like enter UN arbitration. Even though, Hell again, yeah. they've already arrested and convicted these two guys, right? <laughs> because they obviously did it. And the UN, in typical UN fashion, goes, okay, so France is powerful and New Zealand isn't, so fuck them. And they negotiate a deal where, like, these two French officers are going to be, like, released and stationed in this, like, tiny island that the French control for three years. And so the French doesn't, they don't even do that. Uh, they, they pull these guys out in less than two years. So New Zealand is it doesn't go great. I mean, it, I don't know. I, I say it doesn't go great for them. In, in, in the short term, they suffer a series of catastrophic defeats. In the midterm, the French eventually get ordered to pay $8.1 million to Greenpeace, who use the money to make another boat called the Rainbow Warrior 2 and continue to like sail fleets to stop French nuclear testing. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm going to read from Greenpeace's website. Quote, in 1995, the Rainbow Warrior 2 was boarded by French commandos as it, let f- as it led further protests against nuclear testing at Moria Atoll. When Greenpeace activists were asked for their names, they only gave one, Fernando Pereira, which is the, the name of the guy who the, the French had killed earlier. So they, 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 they have their I'm Spartacus moments, and, you know, eventually it, it takes a very, very long time. But... Yeah. They win. In, in, 19, in 1996, uh, France and China do, like, one last nuclear test and then sign the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Uh, India and Pakistan do a pair of tests each in 1989. But since then, no country has tested a nuclear weapon except North Korea, who does it all the time. But, you know, I, 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 I don't know what Greenpeace is supposed to do about, about North Korea testing nuclear weapons. Yeah, I mean, look, you, you can't. Like, I, it, it, and it is, I will say this, like... From a realpolitik point of view, you know, there's an argument to be made that, like, yeah, the the the, the kind of balance of of nuclear power uh, certainly provides a degree of protection to some countries. But my argument would be not having tested your weapons makes them more frightening. If you're France and you're like, look, man, anyone who tests us, we don't know what's going to happen when we fire these things. We don't know if they're going to go to the right place. We have no idea what will happen when we fire our nukes. So come on and fuck with us, but literally anything could happen. That just seems like a better threat to me. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to advocate that one. But no, you know, I think but, I think that's the stance. I think that's the stance. You know, build increasingly large weapons and never test them, so that we just know if shit goes down, we could all die. You know, okay, well, it doesn't it doesn't involve nuclear testing. So I got okay, I'm, I'm I'm coming around to this position. Yeah, never never test them. Just build increasingly <laughs> large doomsday devices, and be like, no one knows what'll happen if we have a war. Why not? Oh. <sighs> Maybe but, none of them work, and we all get to really think about what we've been doing. <laughs> you know, I, I, in all seriousness, though, this is a massive victory. There are there are millions upon millions of people across the world, and millions of people who have yet to be born, who who are going to live their lives free of the effect of radiation poisoning because That's people good. stood up and fought nuclear testing. Yeah, and you know, this is the message that I want to sort of end Earth Day with. 
with, which is the people who are destroying this world are incredibly powerful and they are willing to kill protesters in order to keep their power and keep maiming the world further. But if yeah. you just keep fighting them, no matter what they throw at you, if you just every every single time they hit you, if you just come back and keep fighting them again, you can win. And this is this is the way that it happens. All right. Well, that's that's a good that's a nice that's a nice note to end on. So everybody get out there um, and uh, get nuked once and then get, everything's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Get oh. nuked once and you'll be OK. Like that scientist who drank the plutonium. It's surprisingly easy to not die when you get exposed to unbelievable quantities of radiation. That seems like a responsible note to end on. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.